0: Black Bugs Blood Black Bugs
1: Blood Toy Boat Toy Boat Toy Boat She sells cesarean sections by the seashore. She sells
2: cesarean sections by the seashore. Red leather yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Josh, don't bring your kinky sex life into this. Unique New York, unique New York.
1: I don't need to know where you're doing these things. <laughs> You know what song I have in my head right now? what
3: no no, no, how do you like me? How do you like me? no no, no,
1: you know that one yeah,
2: um that's that's all I know of it. I don't know what that song is. I had uh Clint Eastwood by the gorillas stuck in my head for some reason that's one of, that's their famous one, right yeah, that was their their first one uh, I mean, according to me, they have many famous songs, but you know. Yeah.
1: I live well, in a bubble. It's funny that you bring up the gorillas cuz we were just talking about potentially talking Ravenous. Mhm. And the guy from the gorillas was one of the composers on
0: that. Uh Damon Albarn? Yes. Cool. Um Yeah, how was your uh your uh, Labor Day?
2: Um What did I do? I had to pick Elizabeth up from the airport yesterday. It was it was yesterday. Yes. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> So, I watched these movies last night and first thing this morning. So, my, I am in a, I am in a mind space right now.
1: <laughs> it is, it's wild in here. Am I you? Are you me? I We're gonna find out, I don't know. I don't even know, they go deep. Yeah, this is a funny choice, man. This is definitely... We started by wanting to do... Oh, by the way, hi, listeners, this is Nashville CA. (laughs) Don't spit your coffee. Mm.
3: Um, Hi,
1: everybody. Uh, That's a hell of an introduction. I'll edit around (laughs) (laughs) some We'll find it. Um, So yeah, welcome to Nashville CA. This is a double feature podcast. I am one of your hosts, Sean, and with me over there is my other co-host. Josh. Josh and Josh is from Nashville and I'm from California and we're here to take you on a spiritual mental journey of identity and transgression and all sorts of weird shit transcendence Josh
2: Uh do you, do you think I mean we'll get to that but does she transcend is that what it what happens at the end I think
1: I I I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's going on with either of these movies, man. This was some bonkers shit. Oh. I, we were talking about doing an animated movie, and so I was like, oh, cool, alright, I haven't seen, like, a ton of those, so I'll let Josh pick, like, the lead movie, and then I'll try to figure out what to pair it with. So Josh picks Perfect Blue. I've never heard of it. I haven't seen that much anime in my life. I watch it and then I'm immediately like, dude, (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to put an animated movie to watch with this. Like, I don't know how I'm going to pair how to train your dragon with this movie. This is going to be a real stretch for us. (laughs) And, uh, that's when you decided that maybe we should go with a film instead of an animation.
2: Yeah, I'd really, and I still want to visit, um, Uh, Criterion Channel has some great animated art house, is what they're calling the the selection, uh, up on their site right now. Uh, And they're running stuff like, uh, I think, the Plague Dogs and Watership Down and a bunch of foreign things that I've never heard of uh, that all look really cool. Uh, But the first thing that came to mind was Perfect Blue because it was foisted upon me at one of our movie marathons as a surprise pick. Um, I had given uh, Eli a list of anime because I wanted to watch some horror anime, and he picked Perfect Blue off the list. Uh, But I had just pulled that list from, like, I don't know, Thrillist or something. So uh, this is, it was exciting to me the first time I saw it. I watched it again a few months ago and then watched it again last night. And I think I might start to understand what it's about now, after the third viewing.
1: That's good. You can be our guide through this movie. (laughs) Because again, it's one of those movies where I feel like I took so many notes, and it was just plot points for me to try to keep things straight in my head. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that helped at all. Um, Is Plague Dogs the sequel to Watership Down? I think so, yeah. Yeah, we are never talking about that. (laughs) We are never talking about, okay? (laughs) I read, I just read the Wikipedia of that and I was, like, in a depressive state and crying. (laughs) So it's just not happening. (laughs) Yeah. The ending, like, just thinking about the ending to that movie brings me to an emotional place that I don't really want to get to.
2: (laughs) I love it. See, I kind of want to experience that, though. I've heard... A whole lot of things about that. <sighs> uh, I, I'll i go anywhere with you
1: except, like, dog stuff. Also, Buster's gonna be 12 in two days, so I'm very Oof. sensitive about dog stuff right now. Yeah. So, that's basically
0: what I'd like to avoid. Um, yeah.
1: So, I would much rather watch people go through all sorts of terrible things and awful situations and torture or whatever, just Please don't let a dog be sad. Uh Uh-huh. No dog stuff. Got it.
2: (laughs) I mean, those are famously based on books, which also have, like, have devastated uh, high schoolers for decades, I feel like, when they get assigned to them. Uh, Did you read any dead dog stories growing up or movies like that? I don't think so. I managed to avoid, like, Old Yeller I'm sorry spoilers for all together Um, (laughs) until I was older and oh, you haven't seen it though. I did see it when I was a teenager um, and I was like kind of going back and picking up some things that I had missed uh, and it messed me up then. But even though I knew exactly what was coming to the point that it had been parodied on like kids in the hall to, to the, to the letter, you know, like, they quote the movie basically uh, before or in one of their sketches. And so I knew what was coming and it still fucked with me.
1: Yeah. I read, I remember reading where the red ferns grow mm-hmm. on a road trip and being in the backseat. seat, and like, well, this is good. Cause my mom won't know I'm crying. And like, <laughs> of course she knows like her son's reading where the red fern grow. He's going to be fucking crying, you know? Um, But yeah, I try to avoid that stuff. Eventually, maybe we can talk about Homeward Bound. But even then, man, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's uh, the ending of that movie. Just thinking about it. Okay. makes me, like, childish little baby, man.
2: (laughs) Have you seen uh, The Art of Racing in the Rain? No. Sounds dangerous. Oh my gosh. Uh, So, Elizabeth had given me the book a couple years back. Um, kind of as you know, when you're first starting to kind of chat with somebody and you start trading things like favorite books and stuff, it was one of them that she had mentioned to me, and I started reading it, and even reading it would put me in such a state because it's from a dog's point of view, uh and it's all about like the the tribulations of this family, and I couldn't finish the book. it was rough going. Because I know where it's going to end, and then we watched the movie uh, a few months ago, probably towards the start of lockdown. And I was just a blubbering mess between the family melodrama and the dog drama. It was it's really well done, and it has Jess from the Gilmore Girls (laughs) in it. (laughs) But it was so it's one of those like cheesy schmaltzy things that precisely works on me, and I kind of loved it. It's a it's a good feeling to purge
1: those emotions, but sometimes I just I don't know. Like it's easier for me to do that through a song or something else. I don't know. I just don't want to commit ninety minutes to <laughs> like just depression. Yes. Know? Um like when Marley and me was going around, I'm like, why is anybody watching this movie? Like, okay, oh I you know what fucked me up? It was Turner and Hooch. <laughs> I saw Turner and Hooch as a kid. <laughs> uh-huh. And that, like That's not cool, man. (laughs) Not cool at all. Uh, Just broke me. Also, I remember not understanding the end of the movie where it shows spoilers. Before Hooch gets killed, he impregnates another dog. So you see a bunch of puppies. And I didn't really understand what was going. I thought maybe like Hooch somehow hadn't died or I don't know. I just I didn't want to believe it. You know, can we stop talking about dead dogs?
2: (laughs) I was going to ask you about songs that make you cry, but I think we should just get into the movie. This is just, getting to,
1: just getting uh, speaking of songs, um, we start this movie with Mima.
2: She's yes. our
1: main character of Perfect Blue. Um, this movie, by the way, is directed by Satoshi Kon and the screenplay by Sadeyuke Murai. Mm-hmm. I'm doing my best with the names here, as we always do. Um, so yeah, Mima is a pop star. She's... A member of a trio, a pop trio called Cham, and this is
2: her final performance. Yes, and they're performing at like an amusement park, it looks like. Um it's kind of cool because the very first shot is actually it looks like a Power Rangers cartoon. Uh, and you see like these Power Rangers do a couple like stunts, and it's like a cheap stunt show at the amusement park, but it's almost like a fake out because if you're used to watching Popular anime, uh, I think he was kind of comparing and contrasting a little bit, like like, hey, here is what you expect from anime: laser guns and guys in suits and uh, Power Rangers, kind of blowing up stuff. And the whole rest of the style of this movie is entirely different than that.
1: And I, I that was, was very, very surprised
2: that you were making me watch a Power Rangers cartoon <laughs> for this
1: podcast. <laughs> very, I was like, well, Josh picked it, I'll give it a shot. <laughs>
0: So, uh,
2: as Sean said, they are going to... This is going to be the final performance of Cham as a trio. Uh, Mima wants to move on and become an actor, an actress. Uh, And she's worried about the performance. Backstage, we meet her manager, Rumi, uh, who's kind of fawning over her. And the next little sequence is really cool. And he does this several times, Satoshi uh does this in the movie he intercuts between two, three or four different kind of events or layers of reality depending on where we are in the movie so we see Cham performing their stage show and the crowd going wild for them and then we see Mima grocery shopping in her like everyday mundane life buying fish food and doing mundane tasks um and then it intercuts with also a meeting between Rumi, Mima, and her agent where they are arguing over what career course Mima should take because this is, like, a big step she's taking from being a pop idol in Japan to trying to be an actor, a serious actor. And do you have any idea, any feeling about, like, the pop idol community or that that space that they hold uh, in Japan? I know it's been, like, a bigger thing with J-pop and K-pop kind of coming over here with bands like BTS and Blackpink? Pink Black? I don't know which one it is, but um, my daughter listens to them, so.
1: <laughs> it seems like, you know, when when I was a kid, um, I don't know when the Backstreet Boys came out, late 90s? Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Mid to late 90s, so I was 10 or 12 years old when they came out, and so... It it seems cyclical right now in the United States we don't have pop but we have tons of like hip hop R and B kind of thing DJ stuff that's like the really popular stuff but right um, yeah that that idol worship culture never seems to go away it does seem to shift of who the people we worship are Um, I do have feelings about like the K pop just reading some articles about. Um, how vicious of an industry Mm -hmm. like K pop is, and how like consuming it is, and just discards people when it's done with them. And it's just, it's a juggernaut of a machine and it's a meat grinder, you know? Yeah. So I think that's, I don't think that's very specific to any of these cultures, though. I think that's just idol worship in general across all human cultures. Um, is rarely healthy.
2: Yeah, I do think that um, in Japan, kind of this J-pop idol, because they re- they refer to them as idols, as pop idols, repeatedly, um, and that's a term I've seen used, you know, widely in culture as well. And yeah, I we they did it
1: with American Idol for yes, we still do it.
2: Um, I think it's a position where it's even more, as we see in this movie, it's even more constraining about what they expect from the idol, about what they expect their behavior to be like. It's kind of like we do with uh, like Disney stars or Nickelodeon stars, people who were child actors, things like that. Um you, we want them to be squeaky clean and innocent their whole lives and then when they get older they make a change. And that's what a lot of this story is about from Mima's point of view. That's kind of the the baseline that would be going through it is Her struggling to, um, I guess, come of age in the public eye, you know, age up a little bit and do more mature things. Um, The J-pop outfits that they wear, the the pop idol outfits that she wears are all kind of schoolgirlish. And I I saw the word innocent, like sexually innocent uh, thrown around a lot, which is definitely contrasted with some stuff she gets into later as an actor. Yeah, I mean, Mima's shown to be still
1: very much a child, just as we'll see later on in Black Swan. Um, Mm -hmm. These are adult women who, for one reason or another, with the constraints of their professions, haven't been allowed to grow up, necessarily. Mm -hmm. So still, in many ways, they have... Childish or naive views of the world. They don't sense the danger that's around the corners. Yes. Because of how sheltered forced, like they've been forced to be sheltered. And because of that,
2: they're just naive and
1: innocent, but also extremely vulnerable.
2: Yes. And uh, in Black Swan, as you you pointed out, it's the mother uh, character of Nina. And in here, it's mostly Rumi, uh, her manager, who is a former pop idol herself who kind of has taken on that role and tries to protect uh, Mima and keep her young. Can Um, we talk
1: about how I'm kind of dumb? Why? (laughs)
2: What happened?
1: (laughs) She kept saying Rumi, and because I'm a dumb American, Uh I thought they were using slang for roommate, and so I thought Rumi was her roommate for a solid hour of this movie before I figured out that, no, she's more of like a manager. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, also I was looking around Mima's apartment I'm like, that looks awfully small to house two people. <laughs> <laughs> How does she fit in there? <laughs> That's great. I Rumi's, even... and the way Rumi's illustrated mm-hmm. is weird. Because there's sometimes when Rumi's looking like 45 degrees away from the camera, mm-hmm. the eyes are like super spread apart and it I don't she kind of looks like a a blowfish or something. It's just really, really weird animation on on certain angles on some of these characters.
2: Yeah, I think uh they really tried to draw a distinction between uh like Mima and her kind of young perfection and Rumi as being an unattractive older lady uh at this oh, point yeah. in her life. We'll, we'll... Yeah, we'll see that later. Yeah. <laughs> they they're um, not
1: very flattering about Rumi.
2: No. And uh early on when their performance um we meet a character who is a security guard at the park or kind of a security guard for hire it seems like because he gets into a lot of places and this is Mimania, who uh is He's a stalker. I mean, it's revealed later in the in the movie, but we see him over and over again, like in in shots um, as he kind of works his way towards Mima. And there's a great shot, like at the beginning, um, when they're doing their their show, where Mimania is kind of crouched down and he's holding his hand up in such a way that it looks like Mima is dancing on the palm of his hand. And yeah, her, her it looks little- like
1: um like a
2: music box or a snow globe. Something that he can contain her. Um, I loved that shot. That was really cool. It's like he wants to keep her in that pristine condition.
1: So, yeah, the security guard is holding her and then um, there's these punk kids throwing cans and shit and just kind of being jackass Mm -hmm. hecklers and the security guard goes to try to deal with them and um, he gets beaten up in the process of that.
0: And, uh, we see
2: through the, the crowd, there's kind of, uh, this group of hecklers, there's another group of guys, and both of these groups repeatedly come back as kind of our Greek chorus, uh, and they're constantly gossiping about Mima. This is all they talk about, like, it is like idol worship, celebrity worship, everyone has, uh, thoughts on what she should be doing. Thoughts on her image, thoughts on what kind of person she is based on the image that she's portraying at the time. Uh, And it's so, it's really gross. Like, and it's all, it's all men. It's the only like female characters are really a couple of the actresses, Mima and Rumi, that we meet throughout the movie. Everybody else is men who are trying to define Mima and put their own perspective on her. So it's really kind of um, proto-feminist, I don't know which wave it would be, but uh, I think it's really coming from that viewpoint of uh, the the feminist perspective of someone trying to establish themselves and their own character, as opposed to being defined by the public, which is mostly men. I think that's a really
1: smart read. Uh, This movie definitely seems feminist to me in the sense that it's showing basically a satire of how
0: young women are just turned out. I'm going
1: to use meat grinder again, cause I can't think of a better phrase for it, but just Hollywood consumes young people mm-hmm. and then spits them out, you know? And even if you're one of the most talented women, um, you know, actors in your job, once you hit 35, 40, it's right. like good luck finding a role and good luck finding a role that's not like auxiliary background mom character or something like that, you know? Yes. So I think this movie says a lot. Um, you you saying that those two groups of guys are like a, a Greek chorus, I think is spot on. That's a great way to put it because they're just kind of like the audience commentary kind of they give a little bit of exposition mm-hmm. but they also just kind of give the audience different ways to think
2: about things and um yeah that's really smart so uh back at her house mima receives a piece of fan mail that makes reference to a website and i thought this was um this movie is like prophetic in the way that the characters kind of use the internet and it's used as a like a cultural touchstone. Um, I mean, this movie came out in 1997, so the web, the internet was not what it is now, but they're using it in a slightly futuristic way for the time that the movie was set in, I feel like, uh, with how important movie it becomes.
1: This movie brought back a lot of memories, especially <laughs> later on when Mima gets her first computer and uh-huh. Rumi's teaching her how to do it. Oh my God, that was like, my mom's good uh, with technology and computers now, but when I was a kid, trying to teach her web browsing or anything else on the computer was so frustrating. <laughs> I just remember her always yelling,
3: You click too fast! Yes! <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's And uh, Mima in this, when uh, she's first shown how to use the computer, calls it a double clip. Uh, Rumi says, double click, and she says, What do I use a clip for? And It's just <laughs> kind of Another way to see her uh, naive nature.
0: Yeah. but So there's a
1: blog on this website. Um, Someone says they're always watching Mima's room. And um, it's at this point that her mom calls. Mm -hmm. And um, after this, she gets another phone call. And it's just heavy breathing. uh, Some weird
2: stalker person. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, She also gets a fax that says traitor on it over and over again. Uh, And somewhere in here, Mima also takes down her, she has a poster of Cham on her bedroom wall. I mean, it's like a one room apartment, um, but she has a poster of Cham on the wall and some other paraphernalia that she kind of takes and and stuffs into the, the closet. Like she's really trying to say goodbye to that portion of her
1: life at this point also that every once in a while my mind is blown by something that's small and completely non-related to the story at all. Mhm. Her bathtub has an alarm that goes
2: off when it's full. Also, she fills her bathtub from the sink faucet.
1: What are they doing over there in Japan? They are so far ahead of
2: us, it's <laughs> I not <know>. even funny. <laughs> It's, I've got three <laughs> sinks, or two sinks, and a toilet, and a shower all in the same room, and that's a lot of pipes. That's that a lot, a lot to take care pipes. of. It's a lot of maintenance. If I just had <laughs> one set of pipes, things would be so much better.
1: There should just be one universal water source in every house, and then <laughs> you just have to deal with buckets from there. <laughs> that's probably not a good idea.
2: Uh, also, did you notice uh, her PlayStation? On her, underneath her TV, on her little, like, by her fish and everything, there's a PlayStation on the shelf, which I thought was a really wild detail to put in there. I did not,
1: but recently I was reminiscing about PlayStation 1 and all the nostalgic memories that it brought up. Yeah? Oh, just things like getting a PlayStation demo disc when you would buy a pizza, and then just sitting at home and, like replaying the demo like the first level of something like over and over and over and just like loving it i could play that for hours getting the tony hawk demo disc Mm -hmm. with a pizza hut order or something it came with one level you got to play it for two minutes i think and the only song on it was goldfinger superman so just over and over and over. Brew, 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 brew. Get up, get up, get up. Do 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 And so the song would never finish because you'd get to the two minute mark, right. and then it would cut you off, and you'd restart. And <laughs> Hours, Josh, hours. I did that.
2: That's Tony Hawk was great for that though. When I remember playing the game, and uh, you could restart your run if you weren't doing it well. And I would get into this loop of like trying to pull off a perfect series of tricks and not being able to do it. And like the little three button combo to reset the level and then start again and then reset the level and start again. And I would just do that. I would play that game for hours. God, it was so good.
1: I recently played the PlayStation remakes that came out last year and I suck. <laughs> I don't know if I was just, Better at video games as a kid, I can't believe that, so or maybe it's just my brain has slowed down i I don't know, but it was I found like it was impossible to play
2: So uh Mima gets hired onto a detective drama, and one thing I like about both these movies is neither one of them are very subtle with a lot of their signals. The detective drama is called double bind it's like. And it literally the plot of the drama describes the plot that we're watching all the way through. So you get these little exposition dumps that happen in the TV show within the movie, but they're commenting on the movie itself. And yes, both, I really these, love movies, that.
1: both these movies exist as mirrors of themselves and yes, or black swan with the source material. But if that's, it definitely got a little trippy watching both these movies, especially for you, I imagine, back-to-back, of, like, your brain is constantly in this gray area, especially with Perfect Blue. At one point, I was like, holy shit, did this movie completely switch everything where what I thought was real was, like, is is the film shit actually real? Right. And then, like, Mima's story, that's the film? And st- you know, like, this movie was doing all sorts of weird shit like that, which was... Really fun, but tiresome.
2: Yes. Yeah, there are times when the show within the movie will play out for a while, but you think you're watching the movie itself until suddenly it rewinds and replays the scene again. And then you hear people talking over it as the producers are commenting on the actors or the writer is talking about needing to write a new scene to make something fit. Uh, And it is. But then that also happens to Mima at a certain point where things start looping back on themselves. Uh, And with both of these movies, the amount of times that I noticed the uh, protagonist looking into a mirror or a reflective surface of some kind. And then uh, also how many times they wake up, how many things are like, shit, was that a dream or was that real or was it within the piece of art within the movie?
1: Yeah, that happens a lot. At one point in this movie, it happens like five times repeatedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At a certain point, especially with this movie, I, I just started to throw my hands up and just be like, I'm not going to get it. I'm just not going to get it.
2: <laughs> Did, I thought, um, and this is the third time I've seen this movie, I thought something was wrong with my file because it plays the exact same scene again. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second, did it just, did it skip? Is iTunes fooling me here or something? Did I lean on the remote?
1: <laughs> so, uh, after her first day, Rumi is, or excuse me, Mima's gonna get onto the subway, or onto the train, but as she gets off she kind of has a miniature panic attack because in the blog, the stalker mentioned that she gets on and off the train every day right foot first. Mm-hmm. And so she's just constantly under the feeling of surveillance now, which would be to constantly feel like you're being watched or unsure if you're being watched would be a terrible, terrible way to live.
2: Yeah, at first she seems kind of amused that the whoever's writing um, knows so much about her, but then it quickly becomes scary, and then she becomes kind of obsessive over it later. Um, which is, I think... I would go straight to scary. I don't think I would feel... I mean, she's naive. She thinks it's it's fun and part of being a celebrity, I guess, for a while.
0: Um, no, this is part of that sheltered
1: naivete. And also, I think it was... In you know, the early stages of the internet, it was mm-hmm. kind of like, oh, this is where you go to meet people now, or something. I, it, I think it was just, in general, the internet felt
0: more innocent back then. Yes, I can definitely see that. I remember people being uh, insanely
2: open with their lives at a certain point. Like, people seem to be now, but everything is so curated and um, everything is seen through whatever avatar you have on whatever social media platform. And I feel like there was a, a stage early on where people were just like living their lives on the internet and there wasn't as much curation. And I'm so, I'm amazed there weren't more serial serial killers that just started stalking people online. Cause I know that there were blogs that I followed where people got deep into their daily routines. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: people used to post their cell phone numbers on Facebook and shit. I do mm-hmm. It's just,
2: just, it was a different time, you know? I do have to mention Uh, there's a, a filmmaker songwriter that I am now kind of obsessed with, um, named Matt Farley, who makes these super low budget movies in the middle of Massachusetts with his friends. And, uh, my favorite one so far is called don't let the river beast get you. And they're really fun and charming. And he posts his phone number on Twitter. And in the movies themselves, he'll use his real phone number. And even in one of the movies, he's talking about the fact that he posts his phone number and people just call and he's like, Oh, thank you so much for watching my movies. Do you want some DVDs? And he just sends them free shit like records and copies of his movies and autographed books and stuff. And he just seems like a really cool dude. But what a bold thing to do, <laughs> as far as yeah, I'm concerned. To
1: just- They just lean into it like that. Um, It seems like a fun idea until somebody takes it way too far, and then it's no longer a fun, novel idea.
2: Yeah, it's... uh, I don't know. I I dread being at even that level of success, where you're kind of a, a cult figure, and the amount of people that just have opinions about you.
1: Oh yeah, that's never going to happen with me. I'm not concerned about that. <laughs> <laughs> I am largely anonymous and that's just fun. this is like the only the only um real outlet I have personality-wise that would that goes online. Mm-hmm. Aside from this, it's just Discord. I yeah. have a Reddit account, but that I I don't comment I, rarely, you know. Yeah, I don't know how to use Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about all you people on Twitter. I I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> Good on you. It was fun listening to you and Courtney talk about Twitter and soft boys and buck boys and all sorts of things <laughs> that I don't know about. But it sounds like an intriguing world. It, well, um,
2: it's a really, it's a tempest in a teapot. There's a lot of drama for not a lot of space going on.
1: You know what else is a tempest in a teapot? What's that? New Cham has a big hit. It's number 83 on the top 100. I know I didn't use that phrase correct. I actually don't know how to use that phrase, (laughs) but I just wanted to transition back to the movie. So here we are. I love it. That was a great one. Mima seems legitimately happy for Cham's success um, in her absence. Mm -hmm. Um, After this, Mima's back on set and she feels like she's being watched while she's filming, which is kind of funny to have cameras, you're on a movie set, and even then you still feel watched by
2: someone. Right. Uh and she looks out and she sees that same security guard, or does she? There's always There's a lot
1: of that in this movie. Yes. She sees something, or did she?
2: Yes. Every time we look back, or the scene will replay and the character won't be there. Um so it's like, wait, are we seeing are we actually seeing objective reality? Is this all from her point of view? Uh, there's a point later where I'm pretty sure there's two people's fantasies happening, and they blend together back to back. Um, but she sees Mimania in the crowd of the onlookers, and she's getting some good news, though. The writer wants to expand her role in the show. Um, she originally had—she was, like, stunt cast as this pop idol, sister of a character. and. uh her agent has really been pushing the, the writer and producer uh, to expand her role. The downside is he plans to use her character in
0: a rape scene and we're not to it yet, but
2: we should say if you haven't seen the movie and you do not want to hear discussion of sexual assault, jump to the second movie, <laughs> jump, jump ahead, jump to a different episode. It's totally fine. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but yeah, definitely skip it if you'd like to. Yes. Uh, this this took me off guard, for sure, mm-hmm. <laughs> this next sequence here. Uh, super uncomfortable, not crazy about it, to be honest, but I understand why it's there. Uh, it definitely has flashes of that scene, it's like a famous scene where a woman's assaulted in a bar.
2: From um, the Jodie Foster movie?
1: Yeah, it's from like the 70s or 80s, I think. Yes, yeah. I don't remember what it is. Um, it has vibes of that. It also reminded me of Requiem for a Dream.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yeah, she agrees to do this rape scene uh, against Rumi's protest, which I thought was interesting. Mima sees a flash of herself refusing to do it. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, she's on a stage. A bunch of people are around. She's portraying a stripper. Crowd gets out of hand. A guy gets up on stage and starts groping her and holds her down. Um, they move the camera before um, the assault really starts to happen. And I thought it was interesting. The actor whispers he's sorry to her. And yes. I always thought that would be really tricky for for actors to portray scenes like this and how to do that and make sure that everyone is okay and mm-hmm. is healthy and is going to be safe mentally and physically. Right. Uh, that's got to be a really tricky thing
2: to figure out on a movie set. Yeah. I luckily, well, actually we, we did have a very uncomfortable scene in one of the movies I've shot. Um, and there was a lot of care taken for everybody uh, from all sides, the actors and the production itself. Um, in this, they, when Mima sees the flashes of herself, it's her pop idol persona. It's always in the the outfit of uh, the last time she was on stage, I think. Uh, and when she's in this scene, it, the outfit they have her dressed up in is almost like a cheap, trashy Halloween version of her pop idol outfit. It has a bunch of Um, ruffles and is also kind of infantilizing to a gross degree and it's just it is super uncomfortable but the whole time this is intercut with people backstage talking about the scene Um, we see Rumi and her and the agent uncomfortable Rumi is reduced to tears and runs off at one point while they're filming the scene Um, knowing this
1: was fake did not make it any
2: easier to watch. No, uh, this time uh, I've seen it twice before already. Uh, this time I watched it with the sound off. I, Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I kind of to
1: expose yourself to that. Nope, a bunch of times. You yep. know what's happening. Um, yep. so I, I kind of cool with. That's all we're gonna say about that scene. Yep, um, totally fine. I'd like to move on. So after this, her other manager, I believe, not Rumi, but the guy. Um, he can see that she is hurting. Mima's just in a state after this. She's looking down and closed off and he goes over to her and he's about to talk to her and he goes hey, why do I take you out for a nice meal? Yeah, And completely brushes everything aside and just completely disregards the trauma that she's just experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and So I thought that was really prominent. She gets home and all of her fish are dead, which basically this is the the catalyst that causes her to have a complete breakdown. She has essentially a panic attack lying on her bed and screams, of course I didn't want to. I just I didn't want to say no, you know, so many people were working so hard that I didn't want to I didn't want to get in the way of things. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, again, speaking about Hollywood and young actors, imagine the pressure to be on, on a movie set and somebody asks you to do something you're not comfortable with, but there's 35 people hanging around to do their
2: job, you know, waiting on you. And yes. It'd be immense pressure. And on uh, Mima's diary, the entry actually reads, I don't want to do that drama show anymore. I should sing for my fans. It's what's best for me. It's what's in my heart. And the, diary, even though it's not written by Mima, seems to be on point. like it is exactly what she's thinking, and she wonders how they even know you know to that level uh, what's going on with her. So clearly it's somebody who's who is able to watch her and see her reaction and actually understand her. and I think that's part of what draws her into it is she is having this conflict, and the diary, whoever's writing it is understanding that. Uh, and it's at
0: this
1: point, she, um, Mr. Shibuya, who is the screenwriter, mm-hmm. um, starts to get some of the blame, feeling like he was pressuring her mm-hmm. to do this. Uh, it's around this time also that we get a glimpse of the security guard, aka Mr. Mimania, uh, his room, and it's just there's a computer and it's surrounded by photos of Mima, and that's it. Yep. It, it looks like this guy's room is just a bed her pictures and his access to her and nothing else.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting, the comparison of his room and her room, as we see them progress throughout the the movie, um, her room gets more and more disheveled and there's clothes strewn around. Uh, after she, her, her fish had died. She kind of tears everything up and his room. There is more and more piles of um, these idle magazines. You know, kind of like, I guess, people or cream or teen beat or whatever it would be um, that he's cutting pictures out of. And he just becomes more and more enveloped in the celebrity worship culture that he's already, you know, lost his mind to at this point. After this,
1: Mima is starting to really hallucinate. and She sees the pop version of herself. Um, I believe inside her place. And the pop version of herself says that she's tarnished and filthy and nothing. And then the pop version, I love how the pop hallucination floats like a ghost, but also yes. skips. And so in this one, she, uh, the hallucination, the vision skips across the street lamps and goes from street light to street light, just very gently floating and gliding as it skips along. It's a really whimsical yet scary image.
2: It is, like, it shouldn't, it's one of those things, like in Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, the first one where Freddy Krueger's arms extend and it looks kind of ridiculous, but it's also horrifying. Uh, That's what this makes me think of, where you're like, that's silly, but also, it still creeps me the fuck out. There's something about it that is just off, and it's like Uncanny Valley kind of territory. I don't like it. (laughs) Don't like it at all.
1: uh, Any time something is close but just not quite there like mm-hmm. the, the barren annihilation or something that's just when my brain really gets set into like alert mode because something here isn't right so something, something is wrong about this you know um
0: so the writer what's his name shibuya roll call roll call <laughs> you never
1: heard Shibuya, Shibuya roll call. My name is Sean. Yeah, da 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 da. No. Yeah.
3: <laughs> what is this? What is this?
1: <laughs> I don't know. It's a thing I saw in the office, but people do it. And so it's like a game you would play with friends. And so you would say Shibuya, Shibuya, Shibuya roll call. And then you make up a little rhyme rap about who you are or. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh,
2: moving right along. Is this like an improv game? Like a zip zap zap yes. type thing? Kay. Yes. Got it. Yes, yes, yes. And so you just
1: hang around and I don't know. I've never done it. It looked nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, God. yes. So Shibuya, the writer, is pulling into the parking garage and in his spot, he sees there's a bloody uh, double bind sign
2: mm-hmm. over his nameplate in the garage. And, and he thinks... Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, and we've seen double bind the title and kind of the artwork, the key art for it, um on these big billboards in the back of scenes. And in scenes where we see Mima's face mirrored, you'll see the sign in the background kind of. Um like I said, it's not very subtle, but it's really cool way to use all this stuff of like the alternate versions of reality and the alternate versions of herself, I think. So once again, seeing the, the name of it, and it's splattered with blood uh, over his his parking nameplate.
1: From here, he hears something, he goes to the elevator, he sees there's a boombox, and I really liked um, the sound design of this, mm-hmm. how the music is muffled, and then when the elevator opens, you just get that feel, which I haven't heard in a long time, but when you have shitty speakers, but someone still turns the volume up to 10. Yes. And so it just sounds like, rice being dumped in a bowl or something. It's just, like, completely (laughs) broken, static crackling. And we flash cut to from this to the elevator opening on the fifth floor, and Shibuya's dead, and his eyes have been gouged out? Stabbed? Something. Something bad happened to his eyes.
2: And he... I like every time we find a body, and we're gonna find some more, uh, it's like they just hit the ground because he kind of like slumps even further after the door opened. So it's this weird thing of not just a static shot of a dead body. Uh, They're always kind of like falling over and it gives them a lot of weight that is just kind of disturbing. (laughs) Yeah. Those dead bodies have to get comfy,
1: man. (laughs) Uh, We forgot to mention earlier in the movie, um, the manager receives a bunch of fan letters for Mm -hmm. Mima and he holds on to one that's in a pink envelope that he doesn't hand to her and as he's talking to Shibuya he opens it up and it explodes and so he gets slightly injured and um so after this uh her male agent Mima's male agent I don't remember his name basically mansplains to her that there's no possible way the letter bomb and the murder of Shibuya could be linked that's just preposterous she's been watching too much
2: tv right <laughs> that's uh and once again, she's in a murder show. She's in like a, a CSI type show as an actress that is also slowly becoming the plot of the mo- <laughs> the movie. And it's Yeah, but that's just that's just normal stuff. It's man. totally that's normal.
1: Just- <laughs> when your life and your work started start to like Become mixed, and you're not quite sure who's who, and if you exist or if your work persona—that's that just, just—that's just Wednesday around here. Yeah, totally fine.
2: Normal <laughs> stuff.
1: Um, uh. In the tunnel, this reminded me of the beginning of Eight and a Half. There's a tunnel mm-hmm. scene with a bunch that. of traffic, and this she sees a flash of herself saying "Serve you right" as a car passes her. After this, Mima is going to a photo shoot, and it seems like she showed up to this photo shoot expecting to just maybe do some modeling or some slight cleavage showing or something. But a photographer asks her to take her top off and she ends up being uh, completely nude head to toe. And it's essentially a pornography shoot at this point.
2: Yeah, and we get lots of uh, shots between the assault scene earlier and this scene of like leering men and lots of people uh commenting on her body and the way she's using it and it's like she's in a double bind they want her to it's it's the the strictures that society places on women of either you have to be the virgin or the whore that's those are your your two places basically and we see that kind of in both of these movies that society is demanding that women conform to one of these two images of uh of being a female you know if you show if you are slightly provoking at all suddenly you're a whore you're not pure you're not clean anymore and you can never go back to that you're tarnished and sullied and dirty at this point point. and it's black swan literally says you're either white or
1: black yes yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> uh that's a great point um Yes, I absolutely agree that there there doesn't seem any room for Mima to just live a normal human experience of mm-hmm. having normal growth and normal sexual learning and having relationships and stuff. It's goes straight from you're a virgin to now we're putting you in sexual assault scenes and we're going to have you fully nude posing. And there's no in-between. There's no middle ground whatsoever. Yes. Uh, I love after this <clears throat> um, photo shoot, we see Mima. One of my favorite shots of the movie, she's in the bathtub and she's underwater in the bathtub and it's just completely silent. And again, like the artwork of this movie is really striking. I really, especially just, I think the backgrounds, the characters are cool, but the world itself and how it's illustrated, it, it just feels warm and I love the color palette. It feels, mm-hmm. it feels really alive to me. Um, after she's in the tub, she screams bastard, uh, thinking about the photographer. Um, what do you have after this, Josh?
2: Well, I wanted to point out, I don't know if you, you looked into this at all, um, but this is where the idea of this double bill came to me, is because Darren Aronofsky had actually purchased the rights to Perfect Blue at one point, so that he could use this specific shot from the movie without being called a plagiarist. Uh, so if you watch, there's a scene in Requiem for a Dream that is dead on exactly like these two shots, the overhead shot of her doubled over in the bathtub, holding her knees. And then that underwater shot. And she starts screaming that exact sequence plays out in Requiem for a Dream as well. Uh, and I it's have
1: not seen Requiem in, I don't know. 10, 12 years, mm-hmm. maybe more than that. Um I'd I'd be done to rewatch it. I know
0: people freak out about how disturbing it
1: is. Yeah. Um it it's pretty depraved, but it's not it's not
2: a movie that I regretted watching or anything like that. No. That's I've seen it a couple times. I know it's on some people's like one-timer list. Um mm. Yeah. It's not there for me. It's I think it's it's well done. I yeah, it's good enough to rewatch also.
1: I, I um you and I talked recently about Gaspar No mm-hmm. and um because he did Irreversible, I recently watched Enter the Void, which I would love to talk about at some point. Um but that oh man, that guy's movies they're so hard to watch. Uh or Irre- irreversible is definitely like a one time viewing yeah. for me. There's parts of it that I would like to go back and rewatch, ten minutes here or there of it. Mm-hmm. But overall, I am not sitting through that again. <laughs>
2: that's I've rewatched it except for that first scene, the the opening, the nightclub scene, the the assault scene. Yes, the assault scene.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Fast forward through. I'm most curious about the the nightclub scene, yeah. which is like the very beginning of the movie. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's the sequence I would like to rewatch, and then I think I would turn it off after that.
2: Totally valid. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> um, Mr. Memania um I don't remember how we get to him but he thinks that uh Mima is an imposter and that pop star Mima is I don't know if he thinks she's been kidnapped or something but this new actor actress Mima is not the real one.
2: Yes, he has this delusion where all of the the pictures that he has taped up on his wall of the pop star Mima are talking to him and uh narrating the emails that he receives. He receives these emails every day and it seems like he's writing them to himself. Like That's you- another Black Swan moment, those yes.
1: talking photographs.
2: Yep. I didn't even yeah. catch that, but yeah, that's totally yeah. dead on.
1: Well, now that you pointed out the Aronofsky connection, I think I'm looking for it a bit more. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I thought this was a really cool part. This is one where like that fourth wall or not the fourth wall, the third and a half wall gets broken. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> um, there she's talking to the doctor in the movie, but the doctor says, how do you know that you're the same person you were a few seconds ago? We create the illusion that we have one fixed persona. And that is something that I, it's, it's interesting cause like I wholeheartedly believe it, but I also don't
3: mm-hmm.
1: cause I it, Modest Mouse has a lyric, I'm the same as when I was when I was six years old. Right. And I feel that in my heart a lot of ways. Like I'm a completely different person, but I'm still that same six year old. Yes. Um, So I thought that was just a really great, interesting line.
2: But I think that's, I think that at any point in time, you can choose to be something different and you could consciously make yourself into a different image um most of us do it unconsciously over time and so we see the threads of what came before laying the basis for what we are now and for me like there's a definite thread of my memories of watching twilight zone with my dad up through working on horror movies and doing this podcast like there's a causal chain of events to me that all makes sense of this is why I do these things and i could break that chain consciously but what happens if it's broken unconsciously and you do not know what you're doing as this other persona because it is so far removed from the conception of yourself that you have?
1: The butterfly effect breaks my brain sometimes.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It was like, I, I, when you mentioned that, I, I went back to exactly where this all started. <laughs> I mean, it went, it, it went back further, but it was Comedy Central showing reruns of Mr. Shell. When I was a teenager, Uh I was in high school, it was like junior or senior year, friends started to catch some Mr. Show reruns on Comedy Central, so I'd watch it. That got me into Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, which then got me into like alternative comedy, which then led to me finding like Comedy Bang Bang, which then led to me getting into podcast, which led to with Gorley and Rust, Uh which led to you and me right here, right now. But like, if Comedy Central hadn't aired Mister Show, who would I be? Right, exactly. Completely different person. It, it boggles my mind sometimes that <laughs> the shit
2: like that. You know, that's <laughs> I detailed the other day for somebody um, the way that doing uh, going to work like a half a day on somebody's short um, sixteen years ago changed my whole life and changed my career. And, you know, it was for like four hours and because I met one person and I could like follow that chain of the other people that that caused me to meet and work with and the work that I did. And it is it's horrifying to think about that. If you were on a slightly different trajectory, everything would be different. It would just all be different. You wouldn't even know it. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's. Like the amount of possibilities is so infinite
2: that it's sickening. (laughs) (laughs) It's that's how I feel when I look at the ocean or look up into the night sky in a place like um like the Grand Canyon. Like if you've ever been there uh in the desert around there at night and you look up and there's no lights, right? like you just see infinity. And that's the feeling I get of like looking at all these possibilities, it's too much to comprehend. It's too big.
1: Looking at stars once uh, coming down from mushrooms and just realizing, like, oh, man, every single star I see is from a different point of time. And so oh, it's, God. <laughs> looking into the sky is literally infinite time travel because every single star I see is from a different time. Oh, that Ooh. hurts. That's brain-breaking shit right there, man. <laughs> that oh, hurts. I love it. Speaking of brain-breaking... This is where we start to really break Mima's brain, where we get that repeated. She wakes up again from, was that just a dream? So she's having a conversation with Rumi, who tells her that illusions can't come to life, which mirrors something that was said to her earlier on the movie set. And she wakes up from this. Uh, Mima smashes a teacup in her hands and asks Rumi if the blood on her hands is real. Uh, She's really losing her grip
2: on reality i wanted to call out during this sequence um it is like i don't know if they're dreams she winds up on set you know on two totally different days talking to the doctor having the same conversation but we know it's different days because one day it's raining and one day it's not and rumi mirroring the dialogue from the movie um uh, is all crazy but there's also a shot in here that looks like it's lifted from an Ingmar Bergman movie, Persona, where you see the two women's faces, and um, Rumi is looking straight on, and Mima is looking to the side, and their noses kind of intersect right in the middle, and it creates an optical illusion of looking at one full face, either way that you look at it. Um, and That's it's, really cool. That's on my
1: list of movies to watch.
2: Mine too. I, I haven't watched it
1: in years. I've never seen it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> did that... Ingvar Bergman did Seventh Seal? Yes. I need to rewatch that, because I think I watched it once, but I don't know if I was in a weird mood or whatever. I remember very little from it. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, I was listening to another show recently, and they talked about uh The Virgin Spring. Have you ever seen that one? No. It is the basis for Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. They're basically the same story told in two different time periods uh which is insane I, to me it it did sound familiar and that's why
1: yeah so um i think i just heard of it through a podcast talking about last house on the left or something
3: mm-hmm.
1: um speaking of which that the remake for last house on the left i remember watching a making of about it or something and The lead actress said that she had worked with Garrett Dillahunt before, Mm -hmm. and she liked him so much that that's the guy, that's like an actor that she trusted to be on set to act the sexual assault scene with her, and he said personally for him, it like took a heavy toll on him because this was a woman who, (sighs) a younger woman who he had befriended and, you know, had worked with before, and he had to then get himself into that character's mindset, it really interesting. Um, but again, it seemed like it was a way to do it completely respectfully, right? Or with with as much as you can. Um, I don't. It's really tricky yeah. to to put something like this in your movie. Um, fucking that's a that's a
2: choice. Yeah, It's a real real choice, man. Uh, in the world of the the show within the movie, uh, the characters discuss. The idea of someone being possessed by an illusion or a delusion and then committing murders while in that other persona. Uh the photographer who took the nudie shots of her earlier is watching the show at home alone. And the the movie does this cool thing of like pulling out of the TV, like you look like you're watching an actual scene and then it pulls out through the TV, like Matrix-style, almost. Um, yeah, you get, you get a,
1: a weird like grain effect transition as you kind of go through the glass of the TV screen. Yes.
2: Yeah, that was cool. And uh, this is one of the more famous little sequences in this movie. It's
1: This was awesome. Yes. This was by far my favorite part of the movie. Holy <laughs> shit.
2: So... A pizza man comes to the door of the photographer and drops his pizza. As the photographer reaches down to pick it up, uh, the pizza man pulls out a screwdriver, which he then shoves into the agent's eye socket or to the, the photographer's eye socket. And it's just, it plays out so gruesomely and impressively. Like I, I hate to say that I love the violence, but I love the violence in this movie when it actually happens. It's yeah, done it's awesome. so artfully. It's so She's, cool.
1: She stabs him in the eye, in the groin, in the belly. Mm-hmm. He collapses, and then she gets on top of him. And like as you want so many final girls to do in slasher movies, mm-hmm. just unleashes pure vengeance down on his head yes. with this fucking screwdriver. And it's brutal. And violent, and um, this is a gnarly ass violent scene.
2: There's a shot where he reaches for the his uh, cordless phone, and she brings the screwdriver down through his hand and through the phone. And I thought that was awesome. Yeah, uh,
1: and- this reminded me of a there's a show, a BBC show called Ideal. It's about like a stoner guy uh, who's a drug dealer, and it was a funny comedy. There's one character who was like a badass local thug guy named Psycho Paul. (laughs) Psycho Paul carried around a flathead screwdriver. Mm -hmm. And he's a... Someone asked him, like, why don't you use a Phillips? he goes,
0: because flathead
3: hurts more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This was...
1: This was so over the top. It was awesome. Um, And I love the... One like my my favorite image from this movie, just as a single image, is um, Mima in her pop outfit covered in blood. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a fucking iconic, really really cool looking
2: character design. So in this sequence, as it climaxes, uh, at the beginning when you see the pizza man, he's drawn indistinctly and you can't really see his face. And then as the violence escalates, uh, the scene cuts between different versions where we see Mima on top of the photographer. We see the nondescript pizza man on top of the photographer, but like also her clothes change when the shots change. And he's got a projection TV, and so there's a another image of Mima and on-screen violence being projected onto the side of of the assailant's face and on the wall behind them. And it's just, there's this great shot of Mima rearing back with the screwdriver, ready to bring it down. And it's just like a perfect snapshot. I've seen it as some key art for the, for the movie in some places. Uh, and it's just yeah, uh, so it's, cool.
1: It's the Wikipedia poster. Oh, is it? Mm hmm. Um, yeah, aren't projectors in movies awesome when you, you can just project shit onto a character as stuff is happening? Yes. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, yes, so after this, we get back to Mima's apartment and she finds the bloody pizza boy clothes in her closet.
2: Yes, once again, she wakes uh, up alone.
1: She wakes up again. Again, This is like the fourth time now that we've had the same wake-up sequence, essentially. Yes.
2: Except for this time, she gets a call from her agent telling her about the murder, and then she immediately, like, something pulls her to open her closet, and she opens it, and there is a uh, a shopping bag that she had used a few days before, and it's got the bloody pizza uniform in it. Uh, and then as soon as she tries to leave the apartment, there's a bunch of journalists outside, um, I guess paparazzi which we've seen paparazzi earlier in the movie when she was walking into her agent's office. Um, The paparazzi did not take pictures of her. They all stopped and said hello, and only one guy tried to take her picture, which was like a sign of her fading popularity as she left Cham, and Cham is on the rise. They have their own radio show. They're in the Hot 100. Uh, They're doing great, and she's seen, seen as kind of leaving the boat before it took off, I think.
0: Yeah, I just watched,
1: I don't know why, I watched a little thing about who let the dogs out. Okay. And there was a guy who left the Baja men right before they recorded (laughs) that song. (laughs) No! God,
2: you know how much, how many millions that guy probably missed out on? Was, Was that a Todd in the Shadows video? No, I I love
1: Todd in the Shadows. Great, I've seen that one before. Okay. I love that guy's channel. I haven't watched one of his in a while. No, this was um, might have been uh, Variety or Vulture, oh, one okay. of those V ones, doing one like a song retrospective.
2: So on set again, uh, everyone is gossiping about Mima backstage. Rumi is comforting her, um, and then. In the scene, this is where shit gets real confusing, <laughs> because in the scene, there is a murder that her character has committed, and she passes out, only to wake up again, and then with, she has a deliberate. an ice pick. Sorry, yes.
1: John. So, again, just mirroring everything, an ice pick versus a screwdriver. Yes. She wakes up in the bed again for the fifth time or something, yeah.
2: Um. Uh, and then it seems like she's having a delusion that she is talking to the woman who plays the psychiatrist on the TV show, who is describing that Mima's character committed these murders under an alternate persona who is an actress.
1: <laughs> it's this was where I was like, "Oh my god, is the double bind movie reality?" Yeah, this whole Mima story. This is the. This is the movie in the movie?
2: I... Yeah, because they, they change the um, the tone of the, the visuals when she is first on set and when she's filming. Everything within the movie is brighter lit and looks uh, kind of washed out. And there's a lot of scenes of people standing near big lights or holding up reflectors. You'll see them in the background, and like the reflectors are blinding and the lights are blinding. Um, So when they do it this time and they cut to the TV show, it's never like, it looks like the rest of reality. So you accept it as maybe she is in this room talking to the psychiatrist about these murders that have happened. And it's just, it's so cyclical at this point uh, that it's taken me multiple times to like get a handle on actually what goes on here. I,
1: I, I don't even know if there is a definitive answer to what's going on here. Is there?
2: Um, I mean, well, it does get even more confusing because in the TV show, one of the lines says her alternate persona, Mima. And then they run the scene back and it says her alternate persona, Yoko. Like, right. You know, <laughs> it's like, what the hell? I
0: tell you what, man. Uh, Sarayuki and Satoshi are,
1: Pulling the veil over her eyes, Yes. with us <laughs>
2: um, so this is uh, the end of shooting the movie, shooting the show. The whole thing is in the can now they call cut, and everyone cheers, and they all go off to a rap party. Uh, Mima stays behind to to change out of her uh, outfit, and she's like falling down exhausted. Um, she's leaning on the walls as she tries to walk back to her dressing room. And this is where she sees uh, me mania, but at first she sees herself far off. And then she sees me mania coming down the hall. Um, and that is exactly echoed again in black Swan early on of like seeing herself down the hallway, uh, which I thought was an interesting mirror on top of yeah. the mirror. Oh, there's so much of that in black Swan. Yeah. Um,
1: so, yeah, we're going to have another sexual assault attempt here. Just a heads up for any listeners. Um, so, yeah, the security guard, Mr. Memania, attacks her, and they end up on the stage where she had filmed the previous assault scene. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to rape her. Uh, as he's attempting to rip her clothes off, she reaches and finds a hammer that's been left on the set. She strikes him once hard in the side of the head with the hammer. He freezes before he collapses. um, Apparently dead. And then the lights come up and we hear that people are applauding
2: and there's cameras. What the hell's going on? (laughs) So, other times, in the previous assault scene, at the end of it, she escaped into her fantasy world of being a pop idol again and she was on stage and being cheered. And now it seems like she's escaping into the fantasy world of the show, of filming the show. Um, but I loved again, how the violence played out uh, where when she cracks him with the the hammer, everything just stops. And I mean, you worded it exactly like I did actually, he just freezes um, and then he gets up and stumbles off and falls down seemingly dead, um, it makes me think of uh the talented mr. Ripley you ever see that yeah
1: uh yeah that's I actually watched that just a few months ago that's it's that moment when somebody gets a head injury, and like uh-huh. a, a character is not quite sure of like hey you're just you just playing around or like right. did I really hit you that ho-? and then the blood just like starts flowing out two seconds It's always that delay yes. in between the strike. And then the outcome of it, th- that are terrifying in movies, and I imagine in real life, mm-hmm. when you're just not sure if someone's fucked up or not.
2: And that that sickening moment between... Um, it's used differently here, where you're not sure if the assault is going to continue, or did you really put a stop to it. Uh, but it is... It's horrifying and fantastic. <laughs> uh, and. She's standing over the dead body, and then suddenly she's dressed again, but her clothes are all ripped up, and she's walking down the hallway, and Rumi finds her and asks what happened. Mima takes her back to where the body was, but now it's gone. And Rumi... Rumi
1: says, are you sure you weren't dreaming?
2: Yes. And at this point, we're not sure.
1: (laughs) No. Uh, And so Rumi says, let's take you home. And then she says, we're going back to Mima's room. Yes, And as the person, the stalker, said earlier, I'm always watching Mima's room. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, oh, that's a creepy way
2: to put that. Rumi, what's going on with you? And uh, it's interesting because once again, like in the shot, the persona-looking shot, um, this time, instead of just Mima being reflected in the window, Mima and Rumi are both reflected in the car window as they're driving through the city. And there's a shot that is specifically just the window and you just see the women's reflections, and it's like tying them together in a really cool way.
1: When we get back to Mima's apartment, we see that the fish are alive. Yeah. I p- also, I had this was just a trick. I, I like forgot. I think I had tetra fish. Like, I, I'm pretty sure I had mm-hmm. at least one of these at some point. My, as a kid, I had an aquarium, a little aquarium in my room.
0: Uh, She's calling Mr.
1: Takagoro, who is who's Mr. Takagoro? I don't remember.
2: The director? No, that is the um uh the
0: other agent. Hmm, okay. Uh but he's dead with no eyes, along with the dead security guard? Yes. What's going on? So I think, as we're about to find out here,
2: um that Rumi is the real mastermind behind Mr. Memania. Um one of the two of them committed all the violence up until this point. Uh I don't know if she did some of it and then scapegoating him because he was easily manipulated. Um but I think that uh because the last time we see Mr. Tadakoro uh is as they're leaving the set. So I think that the security guard and the agent are both dead on the set. Rumi killed the agent because he was the one who pushed her, pushed Mima into doing the sexual assault scene and the nudie photos to begin with. So I think that uh, in order to protect her image or feel like she's protecting her, Rumi took it out on him and the security guard who failed at killing the fake Mima.
1: Sounds right to me. Okay. <laughs> also, um do, so as Rumi begins to attack Mima, um we're to believe that Rumi has Rumi's actually the one with the split personality. Yes. 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 Or the dissociative identity, uh however you want to put it. But Rumi ends up attacking Mima and
2: stabs her with an umbrella. That looked really painful. Yeah, the whole sequence of Um, they're in the apartment and then they're going to leave the apartment through the window and, uh, Rumi is flashing back and forth between Rumi and pop idol Mima versions. Uh, like when we see reflections, it's Rumi, but when we see the supposed real life, it's this pop idol who's floating through the air. Uh, they take pains to make Rumi look,
1: uh, unflattering. Yes. In, in this outfit, is how I will put it.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, they run across rooftops, which uh, made me think of the beginning of Matrix. Um, Rumi, in idle mode, floats behind, skipping along, trying to catch up with her. Um, she stabs her once with the ice pick in the shoulder. She stabs her in the, like, the side back, kind of, with the umbrella. Um, the chase leads across the city. And then I love the moment where Rumi attacked Mima but winds up hitting the window behind her. Which was reflecting both women and the window shatters. The mirrored window shatters all over the place. And then uh, Mima rips off Rumi's wig that she was using to look more like Mima and throws it through the window. And then a Rumi goes to grab the wig and is so caught up in the fantasy version that she essentially guts herself on the broken window. And once again, that moment before the blood comes spraying out is just, like, sickening.
0: Yeah, that was... That reminded me of Ghost. Oh, yeah!
1: The broken window? Yep. Yeah. Um... This also, so both these women have split personalities. <laughs> That's what I'm led to believe. Like, that somehow, these two... I, I don't know what's going on, Josh. <laughs> I'm glad that you were here. I'm glad that you've seen this movie so many times so that listeners didn't have to hear me stumble through this trying to make any sense of it. Yeah. Um, I... Oh, this this ending cracks me up. If you have anything else before the final shot, please go ahead.
2: No, I think the yeah, it's um Rumi stumbles out into the street, bleeding all over the place, into the path of an oncoming truck, which is also a dream that Mima has had repeatedly throughout the movie. Uh was that she is in the way of this truck driven by Mr. Mumania? Uh but which this time, also
1: happens in Black Swan.
2: Yes, uh,
0: but this time, Mima knocks Rumi to safety. Uh, yeah, I think I got that right. Uh, Mima saves her assailant essentially, uh, and then we
2: go to the the final scene.
0: Yeah, so Mima
1: has actually become somewhat successful with her because of Double Bind. Uh, Rumi is in a psychiatric hospital. And as Mima's walking out of the building, these two nurses are standing there talking, and they go, Hey, is that Mima? No, that must be a Mima lookalike. alike Mima gets in her car, <laughs> looks straight into camera, through the rearview mirror, and goes, No, I'm the real thing. And yep. then this huge mic drop moment hits, and it's just like rock and roll. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm going to clip that in. I'm going to clip in that. That ending audio—it cracks me up, man. It was just—I had to rewind it. That ending made me laugh so much. With she just looks straight into the camera. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) No, I'm the real thing.
2: I loved it. It was, and for a movie that has been so twisty and done, like kind of been so clever. It seems seems like a real kind of dumb moment. All of a sudden, it's, but
1: I loved it because it was like so clunky and cheeseball, which is not what this movie has been. Yes, that I, it's just it. Was it really took me off guard? It's uh. So there
2: is a book. There's a novel of this that which this was based on, and there's a movie which i think is the same story and then there's a tv show which i think is a different story but i don't know if it's part of the same series
1: that was just
2: as confusing as this movie was exactly i i was trying <laughs> to figure all this out and i was actually comparing the um uh, are they kanji symbols uh i think of like the titles against each other trying to trying to figure out what was the source material and what was the adaptation?
1: Also, if we were more clever, we would have paired this with, and just called it Perfect Blue Ruin. Ah, that's great. Yeah. Damn But it. we're not that clever. Nope. We just have to have that big goddamn X in the middle of the movie time. <laughs> Speaking of that X... All right, Josh, now that we've gotten those ghosts out of our system and hopefully the recordings sound a little better, um, what would you rate Perfect Blue?
2: Perfect Blue? Um, I think every time I've watched it, I've given it four stars and a like on Letterboxd. Um, what does the like mean to you? Uh, let's talk about that.
1: I don't understand the Letterboxd heart. I, I'm I'm a... 1 through 5 only guy. I don't I don't use the hearts.
2: Okay, so there are movies that technically I would rank them I would only rate them a couple stars maybe. They're not very good films, but I love them. So uh it's weird because for me, I use the stars incredibly subjectively. Uh, I don't know if we've gone through this before. Did we do this on the intro episode? No, we have not. Shit, we totally I don't should have. This up.
1: Oh, well, 10 episodes in, and people will finally understand our rating.
2: (laughs) Okay, so for me, two and a half stars is, it's a perfectly fine movie, and maybe if it's on, I would watch it again.
1: Oh, I think we have discussed this. Okay. Yes.
2: Uh, Anything going up from there?
1: I'm right with you, too. Like Two and a half is like, I'm pretty neutral on it. I had a fine time watching it, but I probably won't watch it again. If you're four and up, you're something that I really love. Yes. So you gave Trimmers 2. This is a good example. You gave Trimmers 2 three stars plus a heart whereas I just gave it four stars. Even though I know it's preposterous to say that movie is an 8 out of 10, but for me it's an 8 out of 10. Yes. But then when I watch other things and I rate them the same as Trimmers 2. Right. <laughs> and I have like Godfather 2 and Trimmers 2 on the same <laughs> level or <side>. something. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I would give, um, I'd give Perfect Blue a three and a half. I liked it, but um, the confusion sets me back, and I think that will, as we discuss Black Swan. Um, I think sometimes when there's so much character misidentity and a character trying to figure out who they are, what's going on, that as an audience we never quite get to latch onto anything emotionally, and so both of these. While they're like cool rides and fun, I wouldn't call them fun movies, but like psychologically twisted, Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I never like feel like I'm a part of that emotional arc like I would with a different story.
2: Yeah, it's becomes very cerebral as you're working through kind of all the dream logic and the different, the symbology.
1: Yeah, these these movies are like brain heavy, but not very heart heavy. Yes. I think might be a good way to put it.
0: Um,
1: yeah, I, I think... I definitely want to watch more anime in the future. If you want to watch some Miyazaki sometime, that would be cool with me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've i seen very little of it outside of this and Dragon Ball Z. Okay. And, and, and Pokemon. That's about it. That's, so I'm kind of a, a blank slate.
2: I've watched... Um... A little bit of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, which is a lot of fun um, because my oldest daughter uh, is into it. So when we do hang out, that's one of the things we do. Uh, and I've seen most of the Miyazaki. Those are very heart heavy movies. Those are all great. Very touching. Oh, I'm uh, ready to cry. They're so sweet. Like I'm ready to cry a lot. Even the kind of crazier ones, I think they have a a very humanistic core running through them that will, it'll get you.
1: Nice. Um, Yeah, this was a rare Nashville CA episode. No tears from me. Yes, me either. An empty tear tracker. That's a rarity for this show. (laughs) All right, so let's get into Black Swan then. Moving on. Uh it's directed by Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky, I should probably say. <laughs> came out in 2010. Um it's written by Mark Heyman, Andres Hines, and John McLaughlin. The stories by Andres Heinz. Um, and should be noted, the cinematography by Matthew Libatique mm-hmm. and music by Clint Mansell. And uh Libatique and Mansell um worked with Aronofsky a ton from yes. the nineties through the the uh, To about this movie, I think they kind of went their separate ways at some point around this time, um, after this movie.
2: Maddie Libatique also did Noah and uh, Mother with Aronofsky okay, as did. well.
1: Noah's one. When did you see Noah?
2: I have not seen Noah.
1: Real- I saw it in theater. What a weird movie to see in a theater. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, Noah into... Um. Oh God, I'm like Noah into mother is a lot of Christianity for me to handle. Yeah, Irrowski kind of got hung up on stuff there. The fountain. I would love to talk about the fountain
2: sometime. Oh, also, we could fill up the tear tracker with the fountain from me. I
1: haven't watched it since I became a crier.
2: <laughs> it, that one. Um, I mean, we'll save it for talking about it. But I also I listen to the score a lot. Um. Yeah. Because different songs from the score have made it onto different playlists for me, uh, because there's the more emotional ones, and then there's the real like adventure portions of the movie uh, when he's back in time, and so those make it onto my running playlist. Yeah, and I the want very driving stuff. It's good.
1: Now that we're talking about it, I really want to watch it.
2: <laughs> good.
1: Uh, I I just want to experience, you know that whole third sequence the third story with the weird visuals and it's just stunningly beautiful movie and Hugh Jackman's great Rachel Weisz is great um yeah I can't wait to watch it that's gonna devastate me have you seen the trailer for the new Clint Eastwood movie?
0: Cry Macho? yeah Yes.
1: it looks bad it just looks like Clint Eastwood learned that he can just pull everyone's heartstrings so easily with Gran Torino that he's like, hey, what if in every movie I'm an asshole? And then some young kid teaches me that maybe you shouldn't always be an asshole. <laughs> and that's what that movie looks
0: like. Uh-huh. <laughs> um. Yeah.
1: God, Clint Eastwood directed some cool shit early in his career, but God, the past ten years or so. Ay, ay. I oh. liked Grand Torino when I first saw it too, mm-hmm. until I realized I don't know how easy that movie is upon analysis and rewatching of just uh I don't know, it's lazy, I feel.
2: Yeah, it's very
0: um cheap. Like some- it's
1: it's it's like CBS could pull that off. Yes. And just any episode of Blue Bloods. <laughs> My mom is a big Blue Bloods fan, so (laughs) every time I go home, it's like Saturday mornings, my mom's out watching Blue Bloods from the night before, because it's on too late even for her.
2: That's uh, (laughs) So do you have those things that you don't watch otherwise, but you totally do with your mom?
1: Oh, it, it just like the entire CBS gauntlet. So uh-huh. I'll, I'll check in on some Survivor with her or an Amazing Race. Uh, CBS Sunday Morning, I love that show. Mm-hmm. Sixty Minutes is usually good. the The amount of like existential dread that Sixty Minutes caused me as a child was unbelievable. <laughs> like like football would be over and then Sixty Minutes would start, and I like I had never started my homework before this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it was just like. Sixty minutes is on, and maybe I would try to procrastinate by watching it. But I knew homework had to be done, yes. and I had done nothing all weekend. And this was every weekend on repeat. Then this is just like my life is just procrastination, and I'll never learn. And it's always going to be this anchor that's just eating away at me. Anchors eat away at you, right? That's what they do.
2: Oh, totally. Yes. Great. <laughs> so, did you? Have you heard the term Sunday Spookies before? No. Okay. I posted something on my Instagram a while back, basically about being upset that Sunday had come and you know Monday was gonna is is there and that that feeling of dread. And two different people responded by saying, "You've got the Sunday Spookies." No, and,
1: that that must be an East Coast phrase or something.
2: I don't know. I had never heard it before. And then I asked Elizabeth, and she was like, oh, yeah, that's totally a thing. Really? Yeah. I feel
1: like that's right there with Case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's something that you don't want to hear, really. And yes. Just, I don't know. It feels patronizing.
2: <laughs> but it uh, it is totally that Sunday night feeling. Ugh, I hate it. I utterly, I mean, it's weird now because, um... In this point of my life, I do everything from this desk, essentially, or I drag my screens around with me to like three different places in the house. And uh, my daughter has warned me against doing this. She's like, no, you need to have a space where you relax. And that's the only thing you do there. So I've got this problem of uh, like I'm working on notes for the show. So I'll take my laptop up to the bed with me to watch stuff on the Apple TV so I can watch the extras on the movie. And then cognitively now, my bed is also a workspace.
1: (laughs) Your 15-year-old gave you this advice?
2: Yes, she did. Wow, that's some pretty sage advice. She, in her room, has little areas set up for, like, the desk is the art area, and that's where she does her watercolors and and sketches and stuff. Um, If she's on the floor with the laptop and the books around her, that's the homework area. Uh and then when you're on the bed and she's got a cool like um I think it came from Ikea a pull out bed that can like stretch into two. Uh so it's like a day bed kind of a thing, but you can pull it out and put another mattress on it and make it double wide. Uh that you know, if she's up on the bed relaxing, watching friends or gilmore girls or whatever, that's relaxing time and you don't intrude on it. Like they're all different stations. I think I- it's genius.
1: You almost blew my mind, because I was picturing a mattress that can somehow expand, where it's just like, it's a stretchy mattress. <laughs> and so it just stretches with the bed frame to become double-sized. Like, oh, yeah. How would that work? And then you said to throw another one
2: down. I was like, oh, yeah. It's not a fairy tale. No, we, we have two mattresses. You uh, know
1: what else isn't a fairy tale?
2: Would that be Black Swan?
1: Because it's a play.
2: Uh, so, I watched... Uh, Perfect Blue, yesterday going into last night, um, I took a break with about 15 minutes left to go uh, so that I could watch Ted Lasso. So I'm going from this total mindfuck to Ted Lasso, which makes me cry every episode, and then came right back downstairs and dove right back into Perfect Blue, and then at about midnight, maybe 12.15, started up Black Swan and watched the first half of it. And then I had some crazy dreams (laughs) afterwards. Wow! I I feel like it was kind of an intense viewing session.
1: That's a lot, and also it wasn't. I'm not going to spoil anything, but it was not the most uplifting Ted Lasso Lasso
0: episode. Hmm. I didn't watch. Are you
1: fully? Are you fully caught up? I'm. I'm one episode behind. Ah, well then I won't spoil anything.
2: Yes, which it. there was a moment at the very end of this episode which. Got oh, to me.
1: that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that was a great episode, the one that you just watched.
2: Yes. Um, yeah.
1: I love that show.
2: It's a great. Yeah. It's the opposite of going into this movie uh, where we open on a ballerina in a spotlight. It's Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman has a ballerina, um, which is, I think, perfect casting. Like, if you could take an actual uh hollywood star or starlet rather and put them in the role of ballerina like for years it would have been audrey hepburn and then i feel like nobody really occupied that space maybe claire danes kind of slightly earlier than natalie portman but natalie portman i think is perfect casting for for this role
1: uh i think the four big roles in this are excellently cast mm-hmm. Because we have Mila Kunis as Lily, who's going to be her opposing um, ballerina. Vincent Cassell as the director, Thomas Leroy. LeRoy, And Barbara Hershey as yes. um, the mom. And I think the four of them all give outstanding
2: performances. Yeah, it is um, a real murderer's row with those four. Uh, and I feel like even the... The other couple speaking parts that are in it, the other ballerinas that you see, uh, I feel like maybe they were entirely cast for their ability to like look disdainful at people and they <laughs> pull it off so well. It's just like they're all <laughs> shitty and it's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, this reminded me of just like Suspiria. Yes. Um, have you seen the Suspiria remake? I have not. Way? I have not. Oh man. Um, The choreography is incredible in the Suspiria remake. That movie's super long. It's like two and a half hours long. It's preposterous. Yeah, that's what's kept me from it. But I really liked it. I actually prefer it to the original. One, because I'm just not that big of an Argento head. Mm -hmm. Um, The Italian Giallo movies as a whole just don't quite do it for me. And then the audio, that choice to just not care not give a shit about the audio and just let everybody do whatever language they want and yes. we'll just fix it it just never sat with me you yeah. know it just always bugs me and so i'd rather you i'd rather watch these movies in an, an italian with subtitles but mm-hmm. that doesn't exist you know like there's no they basically don't even record dialogue on the set i feel
2: right uh, so if anyone doesn't know there was a lot of italian movies uh in i feel like maybe the 60s through the 80s where they would use multinational casts and they would overdub everybody's lines later with uh so it's either everybody speaking english in the version that you watch but there was people speaking italian and spanish or french on the set and then maybe one english actor uh john saxon uh, is the guy who gets thrown into those fairly, fairly frequently, I feel like. Um, but it is utterly insane and makes you feel like you're tripping balls half the time because <laughs> people's mouths are moving and they don't match up at all to the words they're saying. But then one character's mouth completely matches
1: up. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh- yeah, and those movies are notoriously minimal plot-heavy visuals, which I think those are fun to watch, but overall, um, they just don't pull me in. And, I don't know, just that, the color palettes. I know, like, the color palette of the original Suspiria is iconic, but it's just oh, it's so oversaturated and super stylized that it's just a bit too much for me, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard, it's hard for me to kind of explain why... It doesn't grab me. Um, but what did grab me was this intro shot in this movie, because it introduces us to, I think, one of the main features of this movie, which is the handheld camera. Yes. And the camera work and the cinematography by Matt Lubatique. So, as these people are dancing, and as the white swan and the black swan are dancing, it's so cool how their costumes evolve and the makeup evolves. And it goes from being like minimalist rehearsal dressing to then Portman's Inn. And Nina is in like her costume that should be on stage to then becoming more of the creature itself as this camera is moving around them. And the camera is doing its own ballet with these two ballerina dance um, dancers. It's, it's a really cool intro.
2: It's so cool because it introduces you to the world, the look, the character all at the same time. Like it, it pulls such weight. I feel like right at the beginning of this movie to do that all. And the, uh, I don't know who the character is. I don't know the story of the black of the, the Swan queen or the, the, um, uh, what is it that we are watching through here? Swan Lake. I don't know the story of Swan Lake actually. So like the black Swan bird creature that she sees later, uh, that we were introduced to in the beginning here. He's cool looking. I don't know who he is. I don't know which character um, he represents. Oh wait, I just realized that
1: I don't get it either. <laughs> <laughs> is that, is that the, the bird version of the prince?
0: I,
2: I feel like there is um, a mirror. I don't think that it's like the uh, in the play itself there's the white swan and the black swan and apparently They are played by the same character, by the same actor, by the same person. Um, I feel like the black bird is the mirror to the prince. But because the swan herself is actually a woman who got trapped in a swan's body, which made me think of um, the parable of the crane wife, which the Decembrists did a whole album about. But that's not at all what this is. (laughs)
1: um yeah so i i don't know the story of swan lake either so the movie does a good job of introducing it very very early on there's a princess who gets trapped in the body of a white swan she needs true love in order to find her freedom there's a prince who she tries to seduce but then a black swan shows up and wins the affection of the prince and because of this the white swan kills herself in order to find her freedom and uh, this is all told through. I think Vincent Cassell is the one who introduces this, right? Yeah, he, he drops the whole story. He
2: drops the Cliff Notes version when we first meet him, uh, which definitely sets out the parameters of what we're going to see happen.
1: Yeah, and I was grateful for this movie. Uh, after seeing The Green Knight recently, no spoilers, I heavily recommend you acquaint yourself with the story of The Green Knight before you watch The Green Knight. Because I did not do that and I had fuck
2: all idea what was going on. <laughs> I would, I have to second that and also say uh, it's the rare instance where I would actually seek out, um, and I think it, maybe it was New Yorker or Vanity Fair that they do these scene breakdowns with the directors sometimes and they talk through how they shot a scene. Um, David Lowry talking about his intention of the scene where the Green Knight is introduced. Like I felt like it unlocked the whole movie for me. Oh, which cool. I didn't have just from the text itself. But it was such a good such a well done movie that I don't mind doing a little bit of extra legwork.
1: Yeah, it was an awesome movie that I think on rewatch going in with more prep, I think it'll have a more profound impact on me than what I felt in theater watching it.
2: Yes. Um the idea that it's about being a good person and having a good legacy um as like one of the central themes is not at all what i picked up when first watching it but i can totally see it being there now uh so in the world of black swan uh, we basically we start with that little ballet and then the next thing is uh natalie portman's character nina waking up in her bedroom uh and right away this is another movie, like I said, not subtle at all. Her room is coated in pink, Pepto Bismol pink. The walls are covered in like pink flower wallpaper. They're butterfly uh, wallpaper. Butterfly wallpaper. Um she's wearing like a pink nighty. Everything is shades of pink or like light gray, cream. Stuffed
1: animals on every windowsill. Yes. Uh, um this this is like a No judgment, but this feels like a 12-year-old girl's bedroom Yes, with a 21-year-old woman living in it.
2: And uh, the one piece of uh, black that you see in the frame is on her pillowcase, and it actually looks like uh, the design looks like wings or vines sprouting from her shoulders as she's laying there, um, which is something I only caught on this rewatch. Uh, that they're kind of like foreshadowing everything that's ha- going to happen. Um, we see her morning routine. We see see her talking to her mother Barbara Hershey about uh, the season of the ballet that they're going into. Barbara Hershey brings her half of a grapefruit, and the first thing Nina says about it is, "Oh, so pink, so pretty." Like you just have this once again infantilized woman who. Her mother has kept her like at this state of rusted development um to try to remake her, I feel like, in her own image, basically. Um,
1: I had to break up with a girlfriend because is how do you say though, is saccharine? Saccharine? S- saccharine? Saccharine. Thank yeah. you. Uh I'll leave that in, whatever. People can learn along with me. <laughs> Everything with this woman. We were both in our late twenties was just like flowers and disney and her shampoo smelled like birthday cake and it was just all far too much for me <laughs> i was like <laughs> i was like really depressed or just in a dark space like everything was like i'm I'm more well-rounded now but like back then it was just like everything was like horror and metal yes. and like just like black. <laughs> so being around her and all this like fluffy butterfly stuff, I just I couldn't do it, man. Couldn't do it. She used to say, "Oh God." She used to say, "Is it okay if I call you my sweetheart?" And that would make my stomach like it, it, drop and like implode. It was, oh God, just don't. You can call me your sweetheart, but please don't ask permission. That makes me cringe, and I don't know why. It's because I have weird emotional issues. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's some layers to your onion right there.
1: Oh yeah, I was just getting into some stuff with a therapist when COVID struck and haven't been back. So <laughs> <laughs> It's like I opened the portal to all these emotions and then stopped going uh-huh. altogether and so now I'm just a Pandora's box of swirling. <laughs> it's like the Ark of the Covenant. Yes. A bunch of Nazis opened my heart and now I melted all their faces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. Love to see that. <laughs> um, so, um, <laughs> we see some dancers doing their makeup, getting prepped. One thing, ballerinas, it seems like everyone does their own makeup, which really impresses me. Yeah. Everyone's doing, like, intricate stage makeup, but they're all doing it themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they say they're talking about Beth played by Winona Ryder and Beth is the the old matriarch who's actually only about 35 or so it seems but mm-hmm. uh she's on her way out and um it's time to bring in some new blood. After this we get one of my favorite little montages which is <clears throat> the Dancing Shoe prep montage. Yes. Where we get to see them strip the cork out that I guess holds the shape of the shoe and then bend the shoe and score the bottom. And later we see them stepping in crushed glass and just stuff like that, where you get to see little insights into a trade Mm -hmm. or into, into a profession. Um, always fascinate me with movies.
2: Oh yeah. There, uh, there's a couple scenes of them prepping the shoes. Uh, the one later where Barbara Hershey, uh, and Nina are talking and they're both working on shoes at the same time. And there's like piles of them around them. It's just like, uh, and we see the toll that the dancing takes on her body. And this is just another example of it, of like these delicate shoes that get ripped to shreds by this dancing. Basically like nothing can physically hold up to the amount of strain that she puts on her body.
1: I believe those shoes only last a couple days uh, for them. That's insane. Which, if you imagine those high end shoes, the amount of money
2: that they go through, uh, be extraordinary. So, uh, early on, we do see uh, her mother helps Nina put on her sweater and notices an abrasion on the back of her shoulder. Um, She attributes it to her picking at it, which we see nina picket at her cuticles throughout the movie we see her mother uh cut her nails and cuticles with a pair of scissors which was horrifying to me don't like that no get some nail clippers what yeah. are you doing yeah it's like someone's tra- shaving with a straight razor when they don't need to like use a safety razor at least i use safety razors i was
1: uh, at one point i was like looking into getting into being a straight edge razor guy yep, i was like what's here. the point They're- To strop it. I'm gonna, I know I'm just gonna like mangle my face when I can just use these disposable blades that cost eight cents a piece and are super sharp. So, and clearly I shave a lot, as as the listeners can see.
2: (laughs) Um, we see, uh, Nina actually sees someone who looks just like her in the next train car over, uh, and again we see the almost the exact same shots of the character mirrored in the subway windows that we saw in perfect blue. Um, but Nina sees the, after seeing her own reflection, sees this other character who looks like her, um, who we actually introduced to later, but it's, I love that you can't tell if, did they have Natalie Portman play both roles? Did they just do a face replace thing? Is it actually ever her, uh, doing these kinds of things. I I like looking at it from the technical aspect too.
1: Oh, interesting. I hadn't quite thought of that. I think I assumed that it was real mirrors with maybe a a green screen put on them for one shot and then, or something like that. I don't know. It seemed, but there's some CG and there's a lot of CGI in this movie. Actually, it doesn't seem like they did too much practically when it came to effects.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I was amazed at watching it, actually, with the, the grainy... I don't know if they actually shot on 16mm, but it looks like 16mm um, kind of grainy, gritty film.
1: I was going to ask you about the grain on this. I s- stopped early to check and see if this was shot digitally. Yeah. It, was, it had that kind of grain to it. Um, that... It was shot on 16mm,
0: um, for sure. Yeah. I think. Because I, I looked it up,
2: and uh, and because it's handheld, through so much of it, it just the idea of doing the digital replacement for uh, the eyes and the skin stuff that we see later is insane to me. The tracking that you would have to do, kind of the you'd have to go frame by frame rotoscoping, I would imagine.
0: Like you, I don't think you could have trackers uh at that point that would have been that precise
1: that's interesting that sounds like a gigantic pain in the ass yeah because nowadays they would just have natalie portman wear a couple green dots on her face or something right
2: yes uh but i feel like even i mean they started shooting this in 2009 2010 uh And it was all shot on uh, Super 16, and they really wanted something that was a... uh, It's a companion piece to The Wrestler. So if you've ever seen that movie, this... I have. uh, He considers these to be like telling two sides of the story the same way that Noah and Mother are both of like his religious texts, I guess.
1: Uh, That's interesting. You could also make the case that pie and Requiem for a Dream go hand in hand in the same way. Of mm-hmm. uh, that refusal to let go of something and getting sucked deeper and deeper
0: into it. Oh yeah. I can totally see that. I
2: like that comparison. That's really
1: good. Uh, uh, every once in a while I have something <laughs> mildly interesting to say. Uh, the, uh, back in Black Swan the director tells us the plot of the play as we went before. He's talking to all of the dancers and he says that he wants an actress to, be, to play both the black and the white swan role. Um, after this, we are in the dressing rooms, and we hear a lot of things being smashed and thrown around. And it's clear that the director has told Beth, played by Winona Ryder, that she's out. And she's going to be recast, and she's essentially being forced
2: into retirement. Mm-hmm. And
1: she's throwing shit everywhere.
2: And uh, somewhere in the backstage drama, uh, we meet kind of in passing uh, Mila Kunis's character of Lily, uh, who is apparently the one on the train. I think so because she got off at the wrong stop. Um, so, I think that's interesting. Like how quickly he kind of get through all of this. Um, like he spends more time in the psychological realm than in the plot realm uh and i like how all this stuff is is hand waved a little bit like it's very economical of just like here's the characters here's the drama um you get the the transition from the prima ballerina beth uh to nina like you don't have to have that drama really explained to you like it already has weight inherent in that kind of change of regime in this sort of a situation
1: yeah, It's also, it's not a story that's necessary to tell for audiences to know mm-hmm. what's happening. Everyone knows the story of, you know, in one profession or another, the old being replaced by the young.
3: Yes. So,
1: um, mm. yeah, it's good economy. After this, Nina goes into the, the um, dressing room where Beth had just had her freak out mm-hmm. and kind of steals
2: a couple of items from there. I only noticed the lipstick at first, and then later I, I had to go back and lipstick, yeah. okay, I had to go back and make the note that the parenthetical of apparently she steals some other stuff like the earrings as well because mm. I didn't get yeah where those and it's like from. the
1: lipstick is one thing but earrings that's just like straight up
2: theft and a nail file which seems unhygienic for somebody who is very worried uh, and borderline OCD as she is interesting.
1: Well, I mean. God, you see how her mom cuts her nails? You bet she wants a nail file. Yeah. She's probably never been allowed to have one in the house. This is a scissor-only household, young lady. (laughs) You will not safely grind down your nails. You will snip them off with a samurai blade. Even
2: nail clippers make me uncomfortable. Like, it's really hard to pinch yourself with them. But especially doing my toes, I get very uncomfortable. Uh... And so the idea of just straight up using scissors is like, oh God, no, I would hurt myself. So I
1: don't consider myself a nail biter, but every two weeks, my nails will get long enough where they need clipping. Mm-hmm. But as George Costanzo and Seinfeld once said, um, I figured out I'm better at it with my teeth and can do a cleaner, better job <laughs> than I could with any instruments. Uh-huh. And so, uh, yeah, every two weeks or so. Give the old bite through. (laughs) But I don't do it um, compulsively or anything. Not,
2: like, nervously or anything.
1: Nah. Nah, just when it starts to look weird. For a while, when I was first learning, like, finger-picking guitar, Mm -hmm. I left my thumb to my ring finger on my right hand. I left those nails long and then just had, like, a short pinky for finger-picking. Not a good look. No. No, nobody likes that.
2: (laughs) uh, When I was in college and studying classical guitar, we were told to go get our our nails manicured. And so that was, um, I only ever did it once. And it was like, your one hand would be super short, your other fingers would be super long and lacquered. Um, And it's not like out of a denial of my own inborn femininity or anything, because as you see, I've got my nails painted. Right now, it's kind of shitty. Uh, a lovely magenta
1: off. that is not chipped in the slightest.
2: <laughs> it's actually a black orchid. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, excuse me. A
2: very specific shade of magenta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, the...
3: I never.
1: I, I got my mom gave me like a manicure once and polished my nails, mm-hmm. and I remember. Them being shiny like that, I did not like it at all, so I, I immediately scuffed them up on some dirt or something to try to like get rid of that polished look, because yeah. it just creeped me out. I didn't like it.
2: My nails, people, uh, for years, thought that I painted them anyway, because my nail beds are very purpley pink, uh, and my nails were like shiny, I guess. So people would ask me, like, oh, are those painted? And I'm like, no. But now they are. So.
1: I've never had anyone ask me if my nails are painted. Just based on my own, you must have weird looking hands.
2: I've also had uh, many women ask me if I um, curl my eyelashes because I have very long eyelashes. Really? Yeah. So that's been a, a topic of conversation as well.
1: What other handsome
2: things about you do people point out? My beard. I get a lot of. <laughs> I get a lot of beard comments, and a lot and of your hair, and a lot of hair. I do get a lot yeah. of hair. I get... <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a tough life
1: <laughs> um, my ex-girlfriend told me I had crazy eyes I don't know if that counts for anything
2: <laughs> I don't think I've ever been called crazy eyes before
1: uh, she saw me at a crazy time in my life so I probably did look a little nutty mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> back to the movie after this um, we see M- Nina's performance as she's auditioning and the director tells her that if, it w- if he was only casting for the white swan, she would get the part but her black swan is weak, essentially. Um, after this, uh, we notice that Mill- uh, Lily has tattoos of flowers on her shoulder blades but they look very similar to wings. Yes. Um. And- Nina starts walking. Again, this is another instance where she sees herself. Uh, she's going through a pedestrian tunnel underneath some scaffolding in New York City. And she sees herself walk past herself in the tunnel, mm-hmm. reminded me of a hilarious story of Carl Pilkington. <laughs> Carl Pilkington read a story about a woman who, she was, she was a little kid and she was walking in the park And a woman rode by in a bike with a really frightened look on her face. And the Mm -hmm. kid didn't understand why. And then 20 years later, that same kid is now a grown woman. And she's riding her bike in the park. And she rides by and she sees herself as a child. (laughs) (laughs) So Carl tells the story. And uh, Ricky and Steve are just like, wait, but she didn't stop. She didn't say, hey, that's me as a child. That's weird. I'm just going to keep riding. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, this next part, this movie has some great body horror, I mm-hmm. think, is one of its strongest parts. Uh, she's crying to her mom because she didn't get the part. It's that oh, it's that sad feeling of like when you're a kid and only your parent can hug you and comfort you after a failure and Yeah, you know, but she's twenty one years old. Yes. But it still feels like a mother and child relationship. After this, she's dancing in front of her mirrors. She has three body-length mirrors, which I Mm -hmm. think are really cool. And she's spinning on her toe, and on about the fifth spin, cracks her toenail.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: This movie does really good with the tiny injuries, which are so much worse than, like, (laughs) decapitation. Yes.
2: Because I can't relate to a decapitation, but I've had my, my fingernails bent back before and like bloodied and fall off i know what that feels like really how'd that happen um i was my mom will hate this not that she listened but uh, yeah and mine doesn't either so fuck you mom (laughs) when i was a (laughs) small child uh (laughs) i got underneath the shopping cart like on the the bottom rack where you put your your soda pop or what have you yeah uh and i was Sitting there, like kind of hunched over underneath, and I thought it'd be cool because there was like a little piece of something on the on the wheel that was flipping around, and I wanted to touch it. So I stuck my finger down, and it got pulled into the wheel. Um, you know the like, there's the little metal thing and the wheel. There's the bar that goes yes. over
1: the top of the wheel. Exactly.
2: Oh, and it, it sucked my finger in and pulled it. Peeled the fingernail back. And my mom kept trying to push the the cart, and I screamed "bloody murder" in the middle of uh, the Martins or whatever shopping uh, we were doing that day. Wow! Yeah, I felt that in my stomach. Yeah, I can I can feel my my finger hurting right now. Thinking about (laughs) it, (laughs)
1: listeners, if you have any hilarious injuries to tell us about that'll make us cringe, you can tell us about them on our Discord. I
2: I like how we've gone. uh, we got two episodes in a row now. We had surgeries in the last one, and we we have other injuries in this one. It's great.
1: Yeah, but last one, so your that story was <laughs> gnarly you told. old <laughs> man. Um. So yeah, we covered her bedroom. Uh, uh, and also about everything about Nina, um, is White Swan when we see Nina, she's constantly wearing that again that Pepto Bismol long overcoat. She has like a white feather boa that she mm-hmm. wears as a scarf. She's extremely soft-spoken. She apologizes multiple times throughout this movie. Um, she Everything about her seems to embody this passive white swan um, mentality.
2: Yes, and Mila Kunis is coated. She's always wearing black, dark gray, um, Her her coat, her hoodies, her leotard. Um, everything is these dark tones. She always has uh, smoky eyeliner going very... And just how she carries herself when
1: she enters rooms,
2: she enters them with
1: confidence. She interrupts the audition earlier, and she Mm -hmm. just has her headphones in, and she doesn't seem too concerned about it. Um, How she carries herself, she just, she has the confidence. She speaks from her she speaks from her belly, you know, she projects her voice. Natalie Portman, Nina, is so soft-spoken, you can barely hear her in some shots.
2: So, what did you think about the fact that Barbara Hershey is also always wearing black, and is seen as, like, this domineering force? Is there, are there parallels between those two characters?
0: That's a really interesting question. Um,
1: I don't know, because... It's like the whole relationship with Barbara Hershey, as we'll talk about later, they have the confrontation, and Barbara Hershey says, I don't want you to make the mistakes that I made in my career. I mean, I, I gave everything up to have you. And Natalie Portman says, What career? hmm Um You were twenty-eight. I, yeah. So <laughs> that was a vicious line mm-hmm. that Nina had. Um I don't think I don't really see parallels, honestly, between mm-hmm. Lily and the mother, because I don't know. The, like the mom's just about control, you know. Yeah. Like just like that's all she wants to do is like control, and she's obsessed obsessed with her daughter. Lily doesn't really give a shit about Nina. I, it, she's just kind of a a girl who she's hung out with and is kind of new, but yeah. Um, you know, as we see later. Lily or Nina puts a lot more emphasis on their relationship than Nina does. I I I might have gotten that backwards. No, Natalie you're... Portman. Natalie Portman inflates their relationship far beyond what Mila Kunis thinks it is.
2: Yes, totally. Um, and it is Barbara Hershey's character is always this great combination—great for a character, horrible in real life—combination of comforting her daughter and cutting like all of her comments are a little backhanded and a little shitty and it would be really hard to have a heartfelt conversation with this woman because you couldn't even call her out on a lot of this because she couches it in the language of care and of wanting to do good for her daughter Um, and I think it's you know that character she's very familiar, uh, of she's kind of a, a martyred herself to her daughter's life. Like, I gave up everything for you, and she seems to never leave the apartment. And everything she does hinges around her daughter, and her hobby is painting these really shitty pictures of her daughter <laughs> when serial she's not killer spending stuff, time with man. her. Yes, this is
1: serial killer stuff, just painting portraits of your daughter over and over and over. That scares me. A room um,
2: filled with them.
1: The The casting of Barbara Hershey is also great because she and Natalie Portman do look alike. And I know it's a mother-daughter. They should look somewhat alike. But I think it also really works towards this idea, again, of identity and losing your identity in others.
2: Um, same reason why Mila Kunis works, as mm-hmm. we'll see as we get through the movie. So. I thought it was interesting um, doing a little bit of background looking at Barbara Hershey. um, That when she was young, she was so shy and quiet that people thought she
0: was deaf. And I feel like Nina
2: would totally fall under that same category. And uh, That's,
1: that's pretty shy.
2: Yeah. I think that's, but that's how withdrawn Nina seems too. So just knowing Barbara Hershey's personal arc of going and being able to play like these, um, what'd you call them? Like boisterous, very in your face kind of characters like she does sometimes, especially in this movie, uh, from that shy withdrawn place would seem to kind of mirror what Nina does.
0: That's really a good point. Um, their mother-daughter
1: relationship feels unhealthy in a De Palma Carrie-esque
2: way. Yes. Oh, that's a that's a great pull.
1: Yeah. I hadn't thought about that one. Um so after this, um, Nina decides that she's going to get dolled up and Beth's lipstick and she's going to try to change the director's mind. Mm-hmm. So she goes and she confronts him and says, Hey, um I really want the part, and essentially she, she doesn't fight for it, though. As soon as, he, as soon as he says, you're not right for it, she gives up, and he's essentially like, this is why you're not getting the part, because right. you don't have that fire. I, I, I need you to fight me. I
2: need you to fight for this. That's, uh, he tells her that he's never seen her lose herself to the dance. She's too disciplined in every moment. She's always trying to be perfect. And he compares her to the other uh, women, um, especially Beth. Beth has something dangerous in her. Uh, He speaks more about it later. That makes her fascinating to watch, uh, or at least has for the last several years, uh, that she's been the prima ballerina. Um, He says
1: that she will never transcend. Yes. Uh, She'll never lose herself in a role, which causes the audience to then lose themselves as well. Mm Mm-hmm um and it's right after this that he just straight up kisses her like no warning no hesitation clearly no consent um yeah and she bites him after a few seconds of kissing mhm and this seems to shock him but also excite him
2: yeah it uh and she looks scared for what she's done and i love the the reaction on her face because it is striking when you first see her walk into that room and she's wearing the lipstick because she's been had a nude lip the whole time. And you see this lipstick and it's like stark and so different. And then when, after she bites him, her face, her mouth area is like pink, like from the the roughness of the kiss. And she just looks so shell shocked in that moment. Like she doesn't realize even how she reacted. I don't think um, it seems to, offend her the whole situation and I think I mean saying Natalie Portman is a really good actress is not stepping out on a limb (laughs) but I think that she really plays it so well
1: I don't know I I think I feel like any actress who exists just based on the fact that they're women are going to have a large amount of people who just hate them this is (laughs) true It doesn't matter. I feel like if you're in a Star Wars movie and you're a woman, there's going to be 10% of the audience that just, no matter what you do, is going to hate you. Well, and I, I don't know what that is, but Daisy Ridley had... Like, yes. Every woman associated with Star Wars. Pretty scary fa- uh, fan base. Man. Yeah.
2: Totally true. Well, then I'm going to stake my, my claim here and say, you know what, Natalie Portman? Pretty good actress. <laughs> <laughs> you know. She's only worked in the
1: business for like 30 years. Yes. Maybe if she gets another 10, I'll think she's valid. (laughs) No, I think I love Natalie Portman. I think she's awesome. Hey, she's one of a, we need to start trying to keep track of like repeat guests or repeat actors and stuff. Yes. We have her from Annihilation. This is our second Aronofsky. Um, Sad to see no Sean Gallette. We, We didn't get a Max Cohen cameo in this movie.
2: No, that'd be impressive, though. Yeah.
1: Um, so, after this, uh, the role has been posted on the paper. The director has told her that Veronica's getting the role, <laughs> she says congratulations to Veronica, <laughs> who then goes and finds out that, in fact, Nina's the one who got cast, which makes Nina look like such an asshole. Yes. <laughs> um, she goes to the bathroom immediately comes out of the stall and someone's already written horror and lipstick on the mirror not two minutes after she
2: got the role. So, I was wondering... Okay. So, the first thing she does is run to the bathroom and call her mom. And when she answers the phone, she says, Mommy, I got the role. Like, she calls her Mommy. She calls her Mommy. It is so wild, I think. But... It's also the point of the pressure really starts on Nina. And from what we've already seen, she has a slippery grasp on reality. She's not, I mean, seeing the doubles of herself everywhere. um, It's kind of been corner of your eye kind of stuff. And I really wondered if um, it was her or somebody else that wrote that on the mirror. Because it looks like it's the same lipstick that she took. From Beth's dressing room. It looks like the same shade.
1: Interesting. Uh, that seems... I had not considered that, but given the actions that happen later in the movie, mm-hmm. that seems entirely plausible. Um, yeah, I would like to talk to you. Maybe this is the time. Maybe it's the time later. Um. you think this was just... Do you think there's any mythical mysticism going on here or do you think this is just a story of mental illness Ooh Okay do you think there's anything supernatural or it's kind of like the the session 9 question again Yes
2: I think it is uh entirely subjective uh I mean meaning we're we're in Nina's point of view. Subjective, right one? Objective?
1: We there Subject, is... Subjective is not factual. It's open to opinion.
2: Yes. So uh, this is entirely subjective from Nina's point of view. We're seeing the majority of this play out, and there's a moment later where there's a definite split between what she is thinking, feeling, seeing, experiencing, and what the rest of the room is experiencing. Uh, and I'll point it out when we get to it. Please, please do. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure what you're talking about right now. And I think that, um, I think that this is entirely her journey, and we're seeing her inner life, uh, and it's entirely uh, conceptual in her own head. All all of yeah. these things are, ex- maybe except for the violence. Uh, itself.
0: Yeah. I, I
1: I think you're right there. Um, the fact that she has... I, I do like how they introduced the idea that she has a past of mental illness. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel too expository or just an information dump. I thought introducing it through the mom as we do. It also um, it makes the mom a bit more relatable because her daughter is vulnerable, and mm-hmm. has issues, but uh, she's not going to be allowed to heal if the mom doesn't give her some distance. Yes, That's so kind of a catch-22. But it does help to explain a bit about why the mom is so
2: worried about her and such a helicopter parent and so obsessive. I was wondering about that, because I feel like this is a... Uh, it's an unreliable narrator kind of scenario, yes, but we also have an unreliable narrator's mother <laughs> because when she first brings up like oh, you've gotta stop picking at that, oh, you've got a rash again, like basically calling it hives, like like a nervous rash um, you know, I'm wondering how much of that is actually real. Is there a um oh? The, the the Munchausen's, Munchausen's yeah. by proxy?
1: Yes. I was just thinking that. Yeah, I, I really think it might be a combination of both, where, you know, mental illness has been shown to be genetic. Mm-hmm. And so if the mom has it, as I think she clearly does, then the odds are good that something about Natalie Portman's past of mental illness is real. Mm-hmm. However, who knows if you know, just the mom's actions caused it. Right. You know, just, I remember, um, I was in my dad, I was in the car with my dad once, and this was like towards the end of our relationships. So it was like eight years ago or ten, 10, years ago, something like that. I don't, I was like, I didn't really talk too much and we we're kind of trying to get back. And he, we went to LA and we were on the way back and he did something, he pissed me off, Said something. I was so pissed off that I was just like, I I didn't voice it, though, so it's just like a silent car ride home. I was so pissed off that my entire body broke out in hives. It's never happened to me before. Yeah. And I was just like, jeez, like, my body's having a physical response to my dad's mental, psychological shit that he's doing with me. You know, like, so that was really unbelievable (laughs) to experience in a, Thankfully, I haven't really had anything like that since. Uh, but, my God, it, it was a weird, weird thing to feel.
2: I've had uh, panic attacks
0: uh, so bad that I thought I was having a heart attack.
2: Uh, when I was going through my divorce a few years ago, I wound up in the ER. Uh, and it was a combination of a lung infection and my racing heart. I thought I was having a heart problem, and they were like, no, because once you calm down, your heartbeat is like totally normal and your your heart rate's totally fine, but you do have a lot of fluid in your lungs but
1: how, yeah how do you calm down when you think you're having a heart attack? Though?
2: exactly so it's just this fucking cycle huh yep it's totally uh, you just get caught in that, and especially if you think that there's nowhere to go and nothing to be done about it it's it's a terrible place to be because no matter what sort of Nervous condition you're having it only is going to get workspace
1: I've had a few but just minor ones where it's just like wherever I am, I have to get out of there this instant, and so one was like having dinner with my family, and like right as dinner ended, I was just like i I could not stand on the curb and hang up like I had to get to my car because we mm-hmm. all took separate cars or something and or I remember. Before the bakery opened, going to this restaurant supply store with the French guy who was living, because uh, it's uh, uh, just like before the bakery opened, I had just tried to quit smoking cigarettes. I was trying to quit smoking pot. Like oh, I was just like a nervous wreck, and then being down there in South San Francisco, away from my car, I felt like trapped, and I was <laughs> just like, trying to like breathe through it and just be okay. Oh, so stressed out, man. Oh my God. It sucks. It it It's like a tidal wave and it builds and builds. So if you don't have somebody to kind of knock you off of that cycle or mm-hmm. out of that spiral and get you to kind of rebalance yourself and take a deep breath. Oh no, no man. Good luck.
2: Yeah, I don't know how I mean, frankly, I don't know how I did it in the past um before getting on meds <laughs> that that helped even my keel. Uh Yeah. It's definitely a world of difference for me.
1: Yeah, uh, I've been on and off meds. I'm off for. I've been off for a while now. But like late teens, pretty much all through my twenties, mm-hmm. uh, on some kind of antidepressant usually. Uh, and yeah, if you find the right one, definitely no shame in it, man. You know, I know you know that, but I'm just telling listeners if anyone's feeling sketchy or shitty about needing help, there's. No shame in that. Everyone's Definitely hurting not. right now. <laughs> who I know, know who else is hurting. Natalie Portman's mom, who gets out an awesome-looking, except super fancy cake. Yes. Like, to celebrate her daughter getting the role.
2: Did she, did she pick this cake up on the way home? Because it looks extravagant.
1: It looks extravagant, and it also just looks like... It looks like there's, like, glitter frosting on yeah. it or something. It looks like a rich person's idea of cake, which, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, flowers and shit. Um, but Natalie Portman is clearly like, uh, I, I can't eat cake, I'm the Swan Queen. Yes. <laughs> she basically... <laughs> was- so I her mom immediately becomes hits that martyr switch, like you talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. This is, like, classic mom behavior right here, what she does.
2: Yeah, she... Goes from when Nina says, I I don't want any. No, I can't have any. Mom, my stomach's still in knots from the audition. Uh, Barbara Hershey immediately picks up the cake and goes to throw it in the trash. (laughs) And like, fine, we'll just get rid of it then. Like, immediately throws that switch. Like, I was trying to do something nice for my daughter. And it's (sighs) so, she turns on a dime. It's so ugly. Like it's so bad, yeah, that side of her that comes out the the aggression and the passive aggression, I guess, so Nina folds and is like, it ah, wasn't that wasn't that, and this is another I don't like
1: this part at all. Barbara Hershey dips her finger in the frosting and holds it out for Nina to lick off her finger. Mm-hmm. I don't like this one bit
2: no like, it's it's upsetting, ugh,
1: something about someone feeding me. Or, like, I didn't like it when people would try to light my cigarette for me. Mm-hmm. It's just, I was, you know, if I was cigarette, smoking cigarettes, I'd hand you my lighter. And sometimes I feel like some fancy women would be, like, miffed by that. But yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. I don't want to. I think we've talked about this on this podcast. I don't want to, like, hold my hands to your face and, like, cup your face with my hands so that I can block the wind. It's just, right. this is awkward.
2: <laughs> this is all awkward. And,. I'm sure that if you look at the overall arc of this movie and especially the, the way that Natalie Portman has been repressed and then uh, her her sexual side comes out, that there is a psychosexual component to sucking on your mother's finger. Sucking pink icing off of your mother's finger. Like, that yeah, seems very Freudian to me.
1: <laughs> I don't like it. We should move on. <laughs> Um, we get some more handheld shot dancing and my god the, the choreography is cool but I just love the handheld movement, it's just it's so kinetic and mm-hmm. like frenetic, and just the camera's alive in these dance scenes it really um, brings it together and it's cool to get that feeling of like, this is ballet up close, this is kind of what it would feel to be moving on the stage around these people who are also doing these dancing dance moves and stuff.
2: Yeah. It makes it very visceral and very real, um, in a way that I don't feel like, like ballet seems kind of perfect and out of remove and something that happens behind glass almost because everyone is so poised all the time. And especially in this scene, when Nina is watching Lily dance, uh, she's like jealously watching the freedom of her movement and she's a little sloppy. But she also has passion and is enjoying what she's doing. And Toma tells her uh, that she's not faking it. He tells Nina that Lily can't fake it.
1: Uh, Lily! I love how Lily dances mm-hmm. because that's—I feel like that's—um—my theory with like the music that I play is it's—it's it's less about technique and more about just putting your emotion into it or mm-hmm. letting yourself go. And so I could try to write structured guitar riffs and stuff, or I could just strum the fuck out of my guitar and just like strum as hard as I can, uh, you know, and, uh, and just like release into it. And that's, right. that's what I prefer to do. So I,
2: I'm more of a Lily than a Nina. <laughs> I am very much a Nina. I remember when uh, I was first learning guitar and my dad was teaching me House the Rising Sun. And I, Great song to learn. Yes. Uh, four basic chords. You can strum it or you can pick it, and it's very solid. Uh, and I remember like asking my dad, like, okay, how many downstrokes and upstrokes do you do? And he's like, you just feel it. Because he had no formal training whatsoever. Like, He took some drum lessons when he was a kid, and was just kind of a natural at that, and then picked up guitar because... He wanted to sing, and so he just kind of did that. And so, like, no no training at all. And here I am trying to, like, turn it into a cerebral exercise, into like this very codified what do we do? How many downs and ups, and very precision driven. And he was like, Oh, I know exactly what you're saying.
1: Yeah. I used to ask my friend in high school, I was like, "Ah, I I can play the chords, but I'm like, I I struggle with like the. The strum rhythm. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, but the strum rhythm doesn't matter. Like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? He's like, well, it's the same chords. So I'm like, well, it has, it has to be like bum 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 It can't be anything else because that's how. It yeah, works. I, the first like five or six years of my guitar playing was only playing other people's music,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which was kind of wild to me. But it, it just took me a long time to. I don't. I always felt like I needed to get by learning other people's music i would see their little tricks or their chord right. shapes and that's how i would learn my way around the neck mm-hmm. i feel like it would have been so much faster had i just started playing my own shit <laughs> or, you know early on and figuring yes. it out but, oh well i got there eventually <laughs> that's all that matters um, up next we are at a big old wine gala where they are going to announce the upcoming season of the ballet and nina is there as the directors um, guest of honor it seems and he makes a big announcement um, at the top of the stairs essentially dismissing Beth as being the old horse that's been put out to pasture and uh, introduces Nina as the new starlet.
2: Yeah he does this like he presents Beth to the crowd she's like down amongst the hoi polloi, but he calls her out by name and he's like we all know her, we all love her, that good old faithful Beth. <laughs> and she she walks off. Yes. Uh because he is the one he doesn't even let her announce her own retirement. Um he speaks for her and he calls her little princess. Um which he seems like he's about the same age as her, but like he's definitely talking down to her. And it's so creepy and weird. And everybody claps for him when he does it. It's so it's kind of chilling,
1: yeah, so Nina goes to the bathroom, and oh Josh, <laughs> this was the scene of all the scenes in this movie. This was the thing like if i if somebody brought up Black Swan, if uh-huh. I thought of Black Swan, my brain is going straight into this bathroom really, N- Nina's in it. she notices a hangnail she starts to pick at the hangnail. Uh Uh-huh. And then suddenly she's peeled the hangnail up to her third knuckle of her finger. And it's just, like, this strip of skin that's, like, ribbon-peeled back. And it's (laughs) nauseating. And like I said, a gore doesn't bother me. But fuck, I know the feeling of, like, going too far on a hangnail and regretting it. Like, ah, shit, I should... If I had just left that, I wouldn't... Ah. So this is, like, that times a hundred.
2: Yes. It is. For me, the, um, I always remember the first time I worked at a a pizza restaurant and the first time that I ever washed dishes in like an industrial uh, sink and the high pressure hot water, the first time that I felt that on my hand, like I thought my hand was going to burn off. Like it felt so damn hot and just like, like, this is not right. And for me. That feeling perfectly fit in with um in the, the book of the book Dune. He sticks his hand in the box and uh, he's supposed to experience a world of pain and he's he's supposed to not flinch. And that's always what I think of. I'm like sticking your hand in an industrial uh, dishwasher, grabbing those plates. That's always that same kind of hot, and that's what this feels like. Like I can feel it in the nerves of my fingers right now. Talking about peeling that that cuticle all the way back to the knuckle did you have
1: a dishwasher where it's like the pull down hood? Oh yeah, yeah, those things get I think they're like two hundred fifty degrees or something like way hotter than the boiling point of water yes Don't say yeah it. no that's you can fuck yourself up just if you open those wrong mm-hmm. and if you you know if you position yourself poorly with the how much steam comes off of them uh yeah, you should have been given some gloves or something. <laughs>
2: to be fair i also lied about how old i was to get the job yeah so well
1: to be fair they should have checked your documentation
2: <laughs> they totally should have i think they just want to <laughs> keep labor
1: ah it's tennessee we can let 14 year old work if he wants to <laughs> i don't know what that accent was <laughs> i've never been to tennessee so uh later after oh no, oh, uh, Lily comes into the Lily bathroom first. Lily comes into the bathroom first, yes. And what's the first thing Lily does when you meet somebody for the first time formally? You take your underwear off.
2: Yeah, and <laughs> put them in your purse. Let's... <laughs>
1: what's going on in women's bathrooms? I don't know.
2: And <laughs> then she sits on the, on the counter, on the sink. Is she going to pee in the sink? Is that what's happening she here? She
1: strikes me as the type that would be like, Toilets are too dirty for me. Yes! So I, and, like, I do what I want. Yes. I don't know, man.
2: She, she tells <sighs> Nina, she's like, no, say, keep me company. And you're like, what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> um,
1: so, after the gala is over, Nina is standing downstairs in front of a giant statue. I wasn't quite sure what to make of the statue. I didn't, I didn't look into it at all. Um, and Beth confronts her. And Beth walks up, and he, she basically says, "How the hell did you get this role? Director always says you're so frigid. Did you suck his cock?" Uh-huh. And Nina responds, "Some of us don't have to."
2: <laughs> Nina's got an acid
1: tongue when she wants to. Mm-hmm.
2: The, the, uh, her mother just came out of her mouth right there. That's what I felt like. I was like, "That's
1: oh, there's got to be a better way for you to word that." there's gotta be some other way you could have said that there
2: probably was yeah
1: (laughs) so after she's hanging out with the director the next day or a few days later and you know they're just having a casual work conversation he asks if she's had any boyfriends if she's a virgin if she enjoys sex you know just normal work Normal work stuff supposedly yeah this is necessary in order to get the performance of the play He needs to know how much uh, sex she has. And, um, you know, you might as well go home and masturbate. I think that might help your performance. Yeah, live a little, he says. So this dude is a Class A creep. I mean, we already saw that with the forced kiss. Yes. But he is just further, further confirming the fact that he's like, um, oh, God, what's the Andy? What's the Andy Daly character? Hmm. Oh, he's a terrible old man. Eh, Do it for the girls. And he has the Rockettes, and they're all strung out on heroin. And his name is not Dalton Wilcox. It is. Oh, my God.
2: An old man? Or a a character that you're thinking of? Don DeMello! Don (laughs) DeMello! Okay. He's a theater director.
1: (laughs) It's an Andy Daly (coughs) improv uh, character. And it's this gross ass, creepy ass old man who's a theatrical director who works with the Rockettes. Got and it. in order to keep the Rockettes around, he gets them all strung out on heroin. Okay. And he does Disney plays, but he puts a little something in there for daddy. And oh, so it'll God. be like a kid's play, but with tits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like, just, just an all around. Horrible, horrible theatrical person, and that's kind of what Vincent Cassell is in this movie. So, yes, her homework is to masturbate. She gets home, and the mom is worried about her scratching. Like we said before, pulls out scissors and starts clipping her nails, telling her daughter, the pressure's too much for you, you can't handle it.
2: Um, She's got this weird push-pull of, like, pushing her into the pressure situations and then telling her that she can't handle it. Um, well, it's
1: a good way to to always leave your daughter needing her mother. It also. You push her into things that you can't handle so that way you can then pick her up the pieces.
2: It also reminded me of, like, an alcoholic parent, of never quite knowing, uh, of always walking on eggshells because you never know how the parent is going to react. You're never safe. But you always strive to make the connection with them anyway. That's true.
0: Once my dad. Became an
1: alcoholic is just like there was always a doubt, always of like, hmm, is he drunk right now or not? And Mm -hmm. a lot of times, like the conversation would just be spent like trying to analyze, like, hmm, I wonder if he's withdrawing or is he blackout drunk, and like trying to figure this shit out, right? um, Yeah, it 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 kills, (laughs) it ruins the relationship when you can't trust the uh, the communication that you have with somebody
2: yes and I'm imagining that her mom has been like this her entire life and so it has kept her like has kept Nina in this position in the same position her whole life
1: yes this seems like a lifelong pursuit this mom has had to control her daughter Uh, so Nina goes to sleep and she wakes up and Nina has a case of morning wood
3: (laughs) and so what are
1: you gonna do but you're going to start grinding one out and air humping your pillow and humping your mattress. And then you turn to your left and you see your mom is sleeping there right next to your bed. <laughs> <laughs> and the way it reveals the mom with like a da-da! And yes. there's like two edits in on her. is really funny. It's, <laughs> it's a really funny, horrifying moment.
2: And it is like... um. <sighs> I don't think Nina and her mom have ever talked about sex, or if it is, it's very much in that Carrie kind of way, like, the boys only want your dirty pillows (laughs) kind of way.
3: They're all going to laugh at you.
1: (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: We find out that Beth got hit by a car sometime during the night,
2: Um, and it sounds like she did it on purpose. Thomas's theory, anyway, is that she did that on purpose. Yes. Because Thomas you're...
1: is the director. Yeah, oh should...
2: it's Thomas. I'm sorry. It's Toma. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yes. I, I forgot his name. I keep just calling him the ambiguous director, but yeah, Toma.
2: Yeah, I actually did a find replace on my notes once once I learned that his name was Thomas.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Watching Stalker early on for this show <laughs> just led to me to call every character by their occupation basically. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um what do you have next? I got Nina hiding that she gets, like, a wood bar from the from the set and hides it under her bed.
2: Oh, okay. I had, um, she goes to visit Beth in the hospital. Oh, yeah. Um, and Beth is unconscious, but she adds some flowers to the large collection in Beth's room. And then she sees her broken, scarred leg, which is, like, in one of those big braces set Beth- with screws.
1: Beth had a compound fracture. Yeah. And it looks gross. Uh, it looked gross.
2: And then, back at the house, she finds a scrap of wood, which she can fit behind her door so it doesn't open all the way to try to keep her mom out.
1: Yeah. After this, we're back at practice, rehearsal, as some people would call it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Then the director yells at Nina that you're like a stiff corpse. He then says to the guy playing the prince, would you fuck that girl? Nobody would fuck that girl. She's frigid. (laughs) Um, Director dismisses everyone. (laughs) Toma, I'm doing it again, dismisses everyone and says that he will play the part of the prince. As they dance, he starts to feel her. He kisses her. He says, open your mouth so that he can actually make out with her. He gropes her, grabs her breasts, puts his hand in between her legs, and then shoves her away dismissively, saying, that was me seducing you. It needs to be the
2: other way around. Fucked up, man. Yes. So fucked up. And it really, it goes from normal dance to creepy to incredibly disturbing. And But somewhere in there, Nina starts getting into it, and that's when he turns around and pushes her away then. And th- just thinking of her mental state that she is like a 12 year old girl and through so much of this movie. Uh, and I-, I can't even begin to think of like what consent would mean in this situation because it yeah. w- it is pushed beyond the point of like, you were already doing this. And then she kind of enjoys it, but also she's had no experience with this stuff in her life. It's so, it's so yeah. Icky.
1: She's she's like, yeah. You know, it's like any place of anyone who's in a position of power. Yes, you know, and then vying for it and using that to get sex to then maybe lift somebody up. No, that's horrible, fucking like predator behavior.
0: Yes. Um. Oh,
1: and But we see, we do get a feel for what this has done to Nina because after this, Nina and Lily are hanging out and Lily says the director's a prick and Nina vouches for him. Yes. And and, and you can just see right here, it's like, oh God, this is like 12-year-old schoolgirl falling, falling for teacher or mm-hmm. something. But it's even more predatory and more caustic. Um, so, yes, and like you said before, the director doing that, making out with her to then push her. It's exactly what her mom does mm-hmm. the, the push and the pull. And so it's just people fucking with her to try to, because they think they can pull something out of her that she can't pull out of herself.
2: Yeah. And once again, it's another case of uh, a story about a woman being defined by everybody else rather than allowing to de- uh, them, allowing her to define herself. Yeah, Absolutely.
1: Can I just say right now, man, you paired both of these movies and what an excellent, <laughs> excellent pairing. Thank you. Really, you truly were. Um, so after this, uh, Natalie Portman is in the bathroom with herself and the, the her, she's cutting her fingernails and she sees the mirror version of herself cut her finger. Um, we go to some rehearsal dances. I love anytime the shots are... You have the practice musicians in the foreground, Mm -hmm. because I think one thing that's lost, and then putting them in the foreground is like, my God, could you imagine how lucky you are to just sit around and listen to professional musicians play this exquisite music at your beck and call, right? Live and you know, like just, just to sit there and listen to this guy play piano and this other guy bow away on the violin, it's stunningly beautiful. Yes, yet it's completely taken for granted.
2: Yeah, the. Uh there's a scene where the, the pianist is there just for Nina and eventually he gives up. He's like, I've got a life.
1: I have to- I go. liked I like that it's like hey, I'm not just a background character. Right. I'm a human being
0: <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh,
1: uh my dogs are about to bark maybe. Nope, UPS kept going. We're good. <laughs> uh Nina's on the subway. Hey, we know this guy on the subway. Oh god.
3: He's from Pi!
1: Yes. Oh, There you it. go. <laughs> I spoke too soon. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> so you know how I'm always trying on new clothes? Yes. Well, I just got a pair of boxers, but I'm not going to try those on.
2: (laughs) I had, I ordered, uh, I actually sent you the link the other day for the the perfect blue shirt. Uh, I ordered one of those, but it's not here yet. Oh, cool. I was hoping to. The other other day I did a podcast for uh, my friend James, uh, did his show, and we were talking about Dracula, so I wore a vampire shirt. I was hoping to be themed for all of the the things. Oh uh, yeah, I saw your
1: it was your Nosferatu, right?
2: It's you not Nosferatu. That- it's Kurt Barlow from uh, uh, Salem's Lot, but it's based on the Nosferatu. I see.
0: You wore that to the design. fair. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And and Kira took that great picture of me. <laughs> yeah, those were both excellent.
1: Um. Oh, okay. So Josh, we yes. got the guy. We got the guy from Pie, uh-huh. who in Pi, he's just singing a song very nicely on the subway. And this one, he's doing jerk off sounds, looking right at Natalie Portman, making eye contact with her. Uh-huh. Just another Wednesday
2: on the New York City subway.
1: <laughs> yeah, she that, gets home. Mom. Oh, sorry. Go
2: ahead. I was just gonna say the escalation from just the sound to the sound and the motion.
1: Yes, <laughs> it's, it's horrible. It's gross. Yeah, it's real gross. Um, she gets home and this is where she has a conversation with her mom, where mom says, I don't want you to make the same mistake I did because mom is concerned that she's staying later and later at rehearsal and thinks the director is up to something. Mm-hmm. Mom's instincts are pretty good here. <laughs> uh, Lily and Nina hang out because Lily thinks that Nina needs to relax and stop just constantly working and actually go live a little and get away from her mom.
2: Yeah. Lily stops by Nina's house and Nina's mother is, of course, like the the girls, the younger women are in the hallway talking and Nina's mother keeps sticking her head out the door like, Nina, come to bed. You got to go to bed. Your dinner's getting cold. Like just this overbearing constantly. And Nina finally shoves the door open and grabs her coat to go out with Lily for the night, um, which it's probably the first time she's ever done that, like acted out against her mother like that. Oh, definitely.
1: But I, this was one thing I was like, is Nina, is she like 18? Is she 19? But we see them go out to clubs and to restaurants, and they're drinking alcohol. Yeah. So this is clearly at least a 21-year-old woman yes. who is still living under the reign of her mother. Yep. Um, so they're sitting down for dinner. A real gross waiter asks Lily if that steak is juicy enough for you somehow this line works and she says something like i don't yeah i can't remember but then he stays for one line too long and says do you have enough cheese for that and completely fucking blows it yep and this i can't <laughs> just flashing back to all the times where it's like i could have gotten out on a high note but i stuck around <laughs> for one line too many and it was just i fucked it
2: you know you totally could. He could have walked away thinking I had a chance with that woman, uh, but no, he entirely blows it, and now he has to live in that shame for the rest of the night. <laughs> Lily gets out a cigarette case,
1: cool cigarette case. Mm-hmm. It has two pills in it. Um, from what I understand, it's Molly because she says you've never rolled before. Um, she says it's pure, straight from San Francisco, which I thought was a really dumb line. <laughs>
2: like they don't have fentanyl in San Francisco. Well,
1: yeah, or just like the like oh yeah, in San Francisco, you just go out on the street corner, you get pure LSD. It's like, You're right. I I don't it sounds like a line of someone who's not spent much time in San Francisco. I don't know.
2: Or maybe around uh, drugs.
1: Yeah, that too. Lily says or Nina says, "No, I'm not interested." She comes back from the bathroom uh, and Lily's at a bar and Lily she sees her dosing her drink. Mhm. Yet Nina is so passive and so submissive that instead of walking over there and punching her in the face, she goes with it and is like, it's only just going to be a couple hours with these two weird dudes hanging out, Tom and Jerry, or Tom and whatever his name is.
2: Yes. Uh, Lily introduces them as Tom and Jerry, uh, but it's just to get a rise out of them.
1: Uh Dosing people with psychedelics. Is like it so fucked up Uh that if if you have someone who claims to be your friend do that to you that person not your friend.
2: Yes, I would. I would hardly agree with that.
1: Like psychedelics are no joke, especially if you are not expecting to have the effects of it. Mm -hmm. I it's really really fucked up. Um,
2: you could seriously hurt somebody. And I can't imagine the effect on Nina, who I'm wondering if she has had alcohol, maybe like champagne for special occasions from her mom, or yes. a sip of wine here and there kind she of a thing. She gets a sip
1: of wine on Passover. Yes. <laughs> I don't, yes. So how is she going to respond to this? Yep. Um, at this point, the guys ask if they're sisters because they look alike. One of them says no, the other says yes, and then I believe Lily says we're blood sisters. Yes. She starts, uh, Nina starts telling the plot of the play to the guy, and this is the first time that she sees, um, bird skin. She sees goosebumps, like literal goosebumps, on her hands. Um, after this, the molly starts to take effect. We get a montage of them dancing in the club. It's red, it's chaos, and every once in a while you get, like, an eye. A frame of eyeballs, like, looking at the camera kind of in the edit. It's just some weird, trippy-out shit. Uh, Nina comes to from her blackout, and she's making out with a dude in the bathroom.
2: That uh, little sequence made me think of, like, a giallo-type uh, thing, just because it was so stylized. So red. Yeah. Yes, the it's red, and then it's green, uh, and it's super saturated whenever it's one of the colors um it flashes and it's like i can't tell if it's sexualized or not it's just bodies writhing and then you get like double images and kind of warped images and you get the two women mirroring each other uh and it's so it feels just like this is a tone poem of of a little piece of this movie uh rather than anything that makes a whole lot of logical sense
1: absolutely um have you ever had a blackout where, like, you just come to? Because Nina all of a sudden, like, regains her consciousness and realizes she's making out with the dude in the bathroom. Right. I, I've been severely drunk before, but I, I never fe- Like, I normally just ended up falling asleep, sort of, but I never felt like you'd have that, like, blackout where, like, how did I get here? Or, I, I, don't, I don't know, like, you see it sometimes in movies where you're in BoJack Horseman, Where characters have, like, moments of clarity where all of a sudden they come to. And I don't... Things always felt way more gradual to me when you're fucked up than that. I never had a moment where all of a sudden I, like, sprang to. I was wondering if you had... I know you don't really party anymore, but...
2: I think, um... In the moment, I couldn't necessarily tell you, like, how I got somewhere, but, like, the next day I could piece it together. I never had anything where it was, like this where it's just like lost time type thing hmm I, I, there was one night I was really drunk and I,
1: I got home but people had to be in charge of me getting mm-hmm. back to the dorms that was a fucked up it's my first night ever I was a freshman in college and it's like my first time ever having like my own beer where I got a senior or something on the lacrosse team to buy me <laughs> Five Bud ices. You know what Bud ices? Yeah, yeah. That's like stronger, higher ABV Bud Light or Budweiser. So I got five tall boys of that. Oh my God. Because it's like $2 each or whatever. And so they're in the fridge and we're at this house and there's a party that's about to start and people keep filtering in. And so I'm like worried about like, that's my beer. (laughs) People are going to like drink my beer. (laughs) And so I like drank all five of them. Yeah. And I don't know, probably like 90 minutes or something like that, and then the guys on the lacrosse team did Jaeger bombs, mm-hmm. so we had these special hourglass-shaped shot glasses with an open top, and so you'd do um, Red Bull in the bottom compartment, and then Jaeger in the top okay. compartment, and then they, they stay separated until you take the shot. Yeah. And I just found these things easy to drink. They, it's like the the awfulness of the Red Bull combined with the awfulness of the Jaeger creates something in the middle that's just weird enough that it isn't terrible, right? And uh, I got fucked off, off my head. <laughs> 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 that was a that was a missing night for sure. Uh, but I didn't come to. I I, I didn't. I, I don't know. I woke up the next morning. Yeah, so that's when I came to. I guess.
2: And I don't know if it would be different with... Because she's had a few drinks and the Molly. It seems like you just would not know anything until the next day.
1: Uh, Yeah, drinking before psychedelics, usually not a good idea.
2: I mean, she's drinking with her psychedelics. (laughs) That's not how she's ingesting
1: it. This is true. Um, Yeah, especially for someone who, like you said, has zero alcohol tolerance. Yeah. Um... She runs out of the the club. She's pissed off at Lily. Uh, Nina gets into a cab. Lily follows her. Uh, Nina's still pretty fucked up. Lily starts to hold hands with her before slowly moving her hand onto her thigh, starts rubbing her groin. Nina's into it for a second or two, and then pulls Lily's hands back and just holds hands with her as they ride. Mm -hmm. They get back to Nina's house. Uh, Mom is pissed off. Mom has been waiting up all night for them. And they go into Nina's room. Nina shouts, I'm not 12 years old, pushes her mom out of the room and blockades the door with the wood board. And Nina and Lily proceed to have passionate wild sex. Yes. With mom presumably standing right outside the door.
2: And it gets real weird because Lily is uh, pleasuring Nina. And she looks up, and for a moment, does she have Barbara Hershey's face? I I definitely
1: saw Natalie Portman going down on Natalie Portman at yes. one point. I didn't notice a Barbara Hershey face, but it, like I said, it was good casting because they all kind of look alike.
2: Yeah, um, and Lily's back tattoo just turns into feathers at this point. I think when you see it before, like I could never tell if it was feathers or flowers.
1: It was roses, I think.
2: Yeah. Here, it's feather, it's wings, and they're they're moving on their own. Um, and here we see also Nina's um, the the rippling goose flesh that she has. Uh, so, like as she's climaxing, her this goose flesh is breaking out all over her body, like in waves. It looks like um, Mystique from the X Men when her her when her skin changes. That's kind of what it looks like. Yeah.
1: This is the most unbelievable part of the movie for me, because unless Lily is some kind of eating out speedrunner, I don't know how you get somebody to come in under a minute. But <laughs> Lily does it.
2: <laughs> well, or does she, as we see the next day. Because Nina wakes up alone, uh the board has been pushed away from the door. Uh she's late. It's Already partway through the day, she rushes out. Uh, she yells at her mother. She asks, Why didn't you wake me up? I'm moving out.
1: This, Uh, yeah, wait, you don't get to have it both ways. You don't get to tell your mom you're an adult and then not set an alarm clock. Yes.
2: Uh, at the rehearsal space, Nina walks in, hearing her cue music is already playing, and she sees Lily dancing her part. Um, she's taken aback. Lily does apologize. Uh, and this is where like the split really starts to happen because Nina accuses her of sabotaging her because she didn't wake her up. Um, but Lily has no idea what she's talking about. And she claims that she spent the night with Tom from the bar. So it's like, this is the, the real start questioning your sanity moment. I think. Yeah. Uh, back at the apartment nina takes all of her stuffed animals and childish things and throws them in the trash chute uh one
1: nina dry heaves that's some weak ass shit yeah based on like our puke meter on this so far macon blair still the champion puker um she does puke later but it's it's not real come on natalie portman be a macon blair yeah, that's. <laughs> uh, I was thinking when she throws out all of her stuffed animals, it's just like, I know she's like feeling it in the moment, but she might regret that later. Cause I. I totally would. I had, I still have it at my mom's house. It was called Mr. Bear. And it was a little stuffed bear that I slept mm-hmm. with as a kid and stuff. And then when I was like 16, I think, something around there, like our neighbor's dog, somehow like my dog's took it outside and like the neighbor's dog got it or some way or another I ended up across the street and the neighbor's like oh yeah my dog got it here here's this thing and it was just like torn to shreds Uh Mr. Bear was and I'm 16 years old but I was like holding it together at my neighbor's house and as soon as I walked in my house it just started like bawling oh yeah it's just even though I'm now 16 and like a big grown-up I'm not still, You're right? You're still <laughs> still six. a child, and I'm still six years old as we went over before. So, uh, Mr. Bear went to, um, a stuffed animal hospital, and mm-hmm. somebody was able to like sew them all back together and replace his eyeballs and shit. And it, Mr. Bear is fine now, everyone. <laughs> don't worry.
2: Um, I don't know, I don't think I sent you the picture the other day. My mom sent me this picture of when I was like 18 months old. Um, I broke my leg. And so I had this big walking cast on when I was a kid. And, uh, so we have these Polaroids and my mom sent me, like, she took a picture of the Polaroid and sent it to me. Um, and I thought it was hilarious. Uh, just because you see this, like this massive cast on this kid. Uh, but behind me is the Winnie the Pooh, like the knockoff Winnie the Pooh that I had when I was a kid. And I slept with it as my pillow for years. Um. And it had a music box in it and like it was lumpy and I still slept with it as my pillow. I loved it so much. And here's the sweet part. Up in her room right now, Kira has that same Winnie the Pooh that I had for all those years. It sits on her windowsill along with her stuffed animals. And it still has a ribbon that I tied around his neck, uh, like for a little bow tie when I was a kid. Uh, But his neck is coming apart. Like he's so threadbare that there's like a hole in his neck and there's nothing even to stitch into left anymore, and I, I feel like his days are numbered.
0: No, there'll
1: always be something left. My sister had Banky Boy; it was her name for her blanket. Uh-huh. And by the time like she was in college, she took what was left. She had like a six by six inch, six inch square piece of scrap. Fabric. Mm-hmm. And that was like all that remained of Mr. Blanky or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> she took that with her. So, um, yeah. Uh, if I had a glass right now, I would raise it to our teddy bears. <laughs>
2: uh, um, they're on stage this day. It's getting close to the performance. They rehearse the final act. Um, and we see basically a, a dry run of the play. Um, that the the Swan Queen, played by Nina, kills herself after her love chooses the Black Swan, and she will never get to be a, a real woman again, apparently.
1: Also, Nina is starting to perform better and better. Yes. We see.
2: Um, Nina finds out in the dressing room that Lily has been assigned as her alternate. Uh, she runs to Toma and begs for it to be anybody else, accusing Lily of having it out for her. Uh, Thomas tells her to go home and rest up because the big day is tomorrow and Nina does not listen. She stays at the, and this is where the the pianist finally leaves because she's just rehearsing again and again late into the night.
1: Yes, this guy's over it. I love that he cuts off halfway through the song. Yeah, he just stops. And he's like, no, fuck this. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> the clock just struck 10 p.m. or something. I am out of here. Yes, Nina continues to practice by herself. The lights go off. She goes backstage to figure out what happened with the lights, and that's where she sees the director having sex with someone? That was not Lily she was, he was having sex with, correct?
2: I think it was supposed to be Lily.
1: Was it? I yes. couldn't tell, because the hair color looked a little different. Okay, well, who knows if this is even real, because then he turns into the black swan in, through Nina's eyes.
2: Yes, the, the woman changes into Nina, the guy changes into the black swan, it's all horrifying. Because he's, he's not just like a swan, he's like a, a big feathered beast kind of a thing. Yeah, that's a good way to put it.
1: Kind of looks like a Power Rangers villain. Yes, I could see that. Um, Nina, now knowing what Beth went through, um, tries to return Beth things to her in the hospital. Beth is seemingly passed out. Nina's placed multiple items on Beth's tray in front of her, including the lipstick and nail file. Beth wakes up, grabs Nina's hand, and then starts to freak out, grabs the nail file, and starts stabbing herself multiple times through her cheeks of her face, yelling, I'm nothing.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Her face changes to Nina's face as she's stabbing herself, and then the real Nina runs off. Once she's in the elevator... Reveal her hands are covered in blood, and she's holding the nail file.
1: This effect, I I, none of this really works for me, to be honest with you. Really, the effect is like that CGI bloods kind of stuff that was in Three Hundred. Um, like the effect of her stabbing herself—it's just very CGI. The nail file is, yeah, and then just. I don't know. It it just didn't quite feel necessary, or it felt like too much for Beth to be stabbing herself in the face. Unless you're going to say it, none of it's real, or the fact that Nina's holding the nail file in the end in the elevator. Did Nina stab Beth? I don't think that happened. I I don't. This one feels a little tacked on without purpose for mm-hmm. me. Is how I think I feel about it. I'm not sure.
2: Because what do you what do you take from it? Well, it makes less sense in the light of what happens later, because we see one of the projections of Lily slash Nina is just been her projecting herself. Like, we understand that later, because of what she does to Lily is then visited on her. Like, that makes sense. That's a one-to-one comparison. This one doesn't, because... Did she stab Beth? Did Beth stab herself? Did any of it happen at all? And it doesn't it doesn't explain anything about her
0: mental state for any of those to happen.
1: I Yes, I, I think it's 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 so subjective that there's you can't look into it any further. Yes. Because you're not gonna find anything there. Um Nina returns home. This is when she finally pukes and it's not dry heaving, but it's just, it's, it's not real puke. Come on now. Ah, she, she sees Beth in the shadows of her kitchen and Beth like is charging at her. She goes into her mom's room looking for her mom. The mom, every single painting is moving and talking and yelling and stuff. She runs into her room and barricades her door. And this is where we get some real Cronenberg stuff with the uh, the rash on her shoulder.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, she notices, similarly to the fly, a little black thing or a couple little black things sticking out of her shoulder, and she grabs one and pulls it out, and it's a tiny little black feather. And this also really grosses me out because just body horror and stuff like that, yeah, just icks me, and like just like the need to like remove something from your body and like that feeling. Uh, gross man <laughs>
2: it's it, gross it makes me think of um, like a botsy fly like the ones that can lay their eggs in your skin
1: yeah I mean I had to dig
2: a tick out
1: of my lower back once and I had oh. no roommates around and so I'm mm. like operating on myself after a backpacking trip like in the mirror with tweezers yep. and a knife like freaking out cause I'm having my own ex- little like Cronenberg experience yep. of like this needs to come out of me now like I need this out of me and I'm not waiting for roommates or anything it's gross (laughs) (laughs) so I can relate to this (laughs) Um, mom she hulks her way through the barricade smashes the door down and um, this was her um, Nina throws her mom's down and then Nina's legs break like a bird's legs I believe
2: Yes. so, once again, I don't know what's real here, because her mother breaks in, then Nina shoves her back out and slams her hand in the door multiple times.
1: Uh, Oh, dude, that's, the hand slamming is brutal. And that was for real, because we'll see it later, when Nina needs to get out, she squeezes her mom's hand to disable her. Uh, So that, that, she slams her hand in the door two times? Yes. Hard.
2: Uh, And then Nina's legs bend backwards, and she falls to the ground and hits her head on the bed and passes out, and then wakes up the next morning with her mother next to her, and her mother has turned off the clock, tells her not to worry about the show, and she's taking the doorknob off the door.
1: which is She's also put, um, essentially, mittens and rubber-banded them to Nina's hands. Yeah, because she She was scratching herself in her sleep.
0: Yeah. Um God, again, the, this feeling of like
1: this mom Having zero boundaries Could you imagine Your mom You have like a big job set up or something mm-hmm. And then your mom calls them when you're asleep And tells them like ah, Josh isn't in a good place You guys need to find someone else I, That Mental Right oh, God, I couldn't
0: I couldn't Um uh, So yeah, Nina
1: strong arms her mom, finds the doorknob under the chair, lets herself out. She goes to the theater. She makes a surprise entrance and goes to her dressing room. Toma comes to talk to her and says, I've already told Lily she's going to play the part. And Nina really shows that she's transcending into Black Swan territory here says, "Have you made the announcement yet? Because you don't need another controversy and I'm here and I'm playing the role." Yes. And you see Toma is thrilled because this is I I really think he thinks that this is his creation that through his manipulation he has brought this out of her and like I, I think he takes personal pride in treating this woman like a piece of clay that he can mold.
2: Yeah, it feels very much like the stories of Stanley Kubrick on the set of The Shining. Uh,
1: that's a great call. Yeah, yeah, like very Shelley Duvall. Yep, Nina's treatment. Wow, yeah, that's good. I mean, it's not good. It's terrible. It's that's horrifying. <laughs> it's
2: terrible. Um, so Nina, as she's getting ready, we see that her toes have started to fuse together, <laughs> which is just weird. Um. She makes it to the stage for her entrance, and as she gets on stage, things get more and more surreal. Uh, when she sees Lily dancing in the company, sometimes it's Lily, sometimes it's Nina herself, like in Lily's place. Um,
1: at one point, she's White Swan is so concerned with perfection now that she's. Becoming Black Swan, she's in the wrong position to make her stage appearance. Her first entrance yes. on stage, and a stagehand says, "What are you doing? Go backstage. You're not coming from the side." Yeah. And so already we see that Nina has is either transcending or has completely said, "Like fuck perfection. I'm, and just going to experiencing. Just go for it." Um, either way, she's changing.
2: Uh, she is so shaky at one point that her partner drops her when doing a lift and like her leg is bent underneath her and she falls right on her knee, which looks really painful. It seems like there was this, the scene earlier where her, her toe, uh, toenail broke, her knee kind of did a little jiggle thing that is just horrifying to me because it it looks like what would happen if your knee just kind of gives out all of a sudden. So to see her dropped on her knee again is like,
1: Oh God. She drops because she sees Lily essentially grinding on the prince and rubbing his dick, and it's Drick. like he's wearing latex pants. Do you think he really wants to have a boner before he goes on stage? <laughs> like it, it's gonna be pretty fucking obvious, man. Maybe now's not the time to be heavy petting. <laughs>
3: um,
1: when and after this, Nina needs to go and transition into from White Swan into Black Swan. She's back in her dressing room. Lily is already in her chair doing her makeup, and Lily essentially tells her, I'm taking this role from you, I'm going to do the black swan. Nina can't handle this. Nina slams Lily into the mirror. They fight, and Nina stabs Lily in the stomach. Lily bleeds out quickly, and Nina drags her into the a little side dressing room or the bathroom in the dressing room and stashes her body
2: in there. So all through their little fight, um, Lily is turning into Nina. Uh, she's got Nina's face at one point when they're fighting. Uh, Nina, the real Nina, has the goose flesh again. Her neck stretches like Lily tries to choke her out, and her neck kind of like cracks and stretches. Uh, at one point, and her eyes turn blood red like they're just filled with blood with like a yellow cornea. Uh, and
0: it's like is this happening? Is this, is this
2: all in her head? What is going on? But right
1: uh, like, like I I I'm guessing, I am guessing as we'll see later. I uh, is she just fight clubbing herself? I, I think, think fight so. Clubs, uh, fight club spoilers. Yes. Is she just like in the parking lot like Edward Norton just like beating the shit out of himself and yes. throwing himself into tables and I, I kind of want to see that cut just to see what that looks like.
2: Uh, back on the stage, Nina perfectly embodies the Black Swan. Um, she's dancing with like passion uh, and her movements are really free. The camera is spinning all around her, and it feels so I said visceral before, but it feels so visceral. it feels so like present and real
1: and I love as she spins, her body transforms more and more and by the end, it's the first time. That we see the crowd, we see the audience, and we see the lighting, and we're we're looking from the stage out into the crowd, and she's silhouetted with the stage lights, and she's has her back bent and her head up, and the wings splayed out, and it's such a striking image. It's it, it's definitely like, I I took in my notes like wow that gave me goosebumps, and I'm like oh, yeah. fuck <laughs>
2: <It's> like, <laughs> I didn't mean that. So this was the moment that. There's a split between the subjective and the objective realities, because when we are on the stage looking out towards the crowd and we see the sea of faces and the lights and we see her kind of silhouetted in the light, we see the feathers uh, that have come off of her arms. Like it's the goose flesh turned into feathers and the feathers begin sprouting from the length of her arms and then they, they cover her chest and back as well. And then when we're in the audience and we're looking up onto the stage, she herself is just normal. But the image that is projected behind her by the lights is is the feathered image. So it's this weird split of like objective and subjective realities happening right there. And that's why and, I, I think that what the audience is seeing is not supernatural at all.
1: I, I, I like that almost as a fourth wall break, too, of just showing what this movie is where we're watching the play but we're also watching a movie of the play yes. so we're, we're kind of watching two things at once um and so you're getting like the real performance of the actual play in the theater and then you're also getting the mythological one with the wings the shadow the mm-hmm. one that's happening behind the scenes and that's where the magic is
2: so she rushes off the stage uh the crowd like coming to its feet she grabs Toma and starts kissing him, and the crowd is giving her a standing ovation, and it looks like they're throwing flowers onto the stage, maybe, even though this is not the end of the show. This is
1: the end of the second act,
2: Yes, it seems? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, she runs back into her dressing room. She's got to get ready to be the white swan. The blood is starting to leak out from under the door, so she shoves a tallow over there under it. But then Lily shows up and knocks on her door. And Lily says, hey, uh, I know we kind of got off to a rocky start there after a minute, but I just want to say, like, holy shit, that was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And this is where the movie really opens up and unravels. And uh, Nina goes and checks the body's gone. And then we see the blood coming out from Nina's stomach. And she has the piece of glass in her, which also means she did that entire Black Swan performance with jagged glass in her abdomen
2: yes yeah she had taken the mirror and and stabbed lily slash herself with it and and broken it off so there's like a shard left inside which is ugh. and then she pulls it out i don't know what's worse leaving it in or pulling it out <laughs> they're both horrifying well, to me
1: yes but in real life anytime you have something like that in you leave it in you yes viewers please Don't pull any knives out of your body or anything. Right. I've seen too many horror
2: movies, and that's how you die. That's when you're going to bleed out. Because Nina finishes her makeup and goes back to the stage again to dance the climax of the story as the white swan. And she runs to the top of this precipice, this piece of stage uh, that the swan is supposed to jump off of to kill herself. And the blood is spreading across her torso as this happens and she, she does it like she's transcending in this moment. And the way the camera trick that he uses as she jumps off of the top of it and it comes into her face. And then she slowly kind of floats down to that mattress. Uh, And like when she impacts, it's so light and it's just, I don't know. It adds another layer of surreality to what's going on.
1: Yeah, I'm trying. There, there's another shot similar to that. It might be in the fountain. I can't picture it right right, right now, but where you get that character falling into bed, mm-hmm. but the stable camera on their face and frame. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really cool. I I thought maybe she would like because we see earlier in the thing that she jumps to the side, to the left where the mattress was. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe during the actual performance, she would just leap straight back. Yeah. And, uh, wrestler spoilers, skip forward 30 seconds. (laughs) Very similar to the ending of the wrestler. Yeah. Where uh, somebody goes out doing the thing that they love literally in mid air, dying at the climax of their life at the absolute apex of everything. Right. And that's where they die. Um, yeah, but she's... last line. Nina's last line, as the director runs up and says, "What did what you have do? have done, my little princess?" Yes. he finally called her it. He finally adopts her as his new Beth, before he realizes that she's dying. Nina, the last line, I believe, is, "I felt it, perfect. It was perfect. I was
2: perfect." She says,
1: "I uh, gotcha." Um, and the movie fades to white. With the crowd cheering and chanting, Nina, yes. Nina. And then there's just like a standing ovation, as it says, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Yes. <laughs> How do you feel about that, Josh? How do you it, feel about a
2: director literally having a standing ovation to his own name? I love it. I love <laughs> the big swing of that. It, it's like at the end of *Inglorious Bastards where Brad Pitt looks directly into the camera and says, I think it might be my masterpiece. And then it's like, directed by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> it's such a ballsy move. Or it's
1: like at the end of The Meg, when the word <laughs> fiend goes and scroll across yeah, the screen.
2: Just chef kiss. You know,
1: these are perfect movie endings. <laughs> uh, Inglorious Bastards, uh, Black Swan, and The and Meg. The Meg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it the The balls to do that yes. <laughs> to end your movie like that. It really made me laugh. Um, it also made me a little sad because
0: Aronofsky. Um, this is kind of
1: his own apex. It was this was after The Wrestler, correct? Yes. So I mean, what did he do after this? He did Noah. Noah. He did Mother. mother And that's it so far?
2: Uh, He's got The Whale, which I think is in post-production. See, Uh, that
1: sounds Christian. That
2: sounds Christian biblical. It's apparently not. It's about a 600-pound middle-aged man named Charlie who tries to reconnect with his daughter.
1: Yeah, it sounds exactly like the story of Noah and the Whale. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, that is...
0: Wow, that's not what
2: I expected Aronofsky's career to go. Nope. It's an A24 film, though. They got
1: the rights to it. A24 is just all about, like, what kind of character can we have with some sort of abnormality? Oh, what? You have a child that's a goat? Sold. <laughs> we'll take it. Um...
0: I, do you have anything else for Black Swan?
2: No, I think we got through most of it during the during the thing.
1: Yeah. Well, to wrap up, Black Swan. Um, for me, I would give it a four out of five. I I think, like we said before, um, both these movies are a little too brain heavy for me, and uh, they lose me a little bit. And then also, I think the Black Swan. The trick of, like, the mirror trick, or of, like, seeing Natalie Portman's face as an other character's faces, mm-hmm. they they just do it a lot. It, it it gets watered down, the the effectiveness of that effect. God damn it, I hate my brain. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the effectiveness of the effect. Yeah.
1: Um, but it just gets a little watered down, and I kind of wish maybe they had thought of one more gimmick in order to show... Her losing her identity in other people, mm-hmm. as opposed to just the mirror and seeing her face transplanted. Yeah, maybe there's some other way, some affectation that she had, some quirk, character quirk, or like something that she did physically that she would start to notice in other. Just something different, you know.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the idea of like she sees her own kind of bloody cuticles uh, several times throughout the the movie. Um, if she would have looked over at Lily and saw her picking at her cuticles, like that could have been, uh, like a sign that they were the same person or merging or whatever it is that was happening. Um, as opposed to just, there's my face, there's my face on that other person. But that's what I said. Neither one of these movies were very subtle. Um, they're not always obvious because they're so convoluted, but they're not subtle.
1: No, but, I mean, with good reason. Especially Black Swan, like, if you were trying to, like, shammel on this and, like, pull the rug out from under people at the very end, that that's when you get your identity crisis. Yeah, yeah. Everyone would be like, yeah, I knew this ten minutes into the movie. Right. right? You really think you had me fooled? So I do think Aronofsky played it smart to make it obvious and to show his card early on of, like, this is going to be an identity switch movie.
2: Yeah. The so I gave it four out of five stars as well. Uh, I think it's an incredibly well done movie. Um, I've probably seen it three or four times now total, and I really enjoy it. I, I think I enjoy it more each time I watch it, but it doesn't you hit know, me in the heart.
1: One thing that I did miss was um, I didn't know I didn't notice too much Clint Mansell mm. score in it that wasn't maybe you know um music taken from ballet Yes, yeah. i would i i love Clint mansell and he's done some amazing pieces of work like moon requiem um pie just tons of different really unique stuff i would have i think i would have liked a little bit more of his own personal touch on this one or yeah. some original stuff maybe in between the theatrical scenes um but i i get what they were doing they were they were sticking with that idea of you're watching a play and a movie at the same time and so you're going to get you're going to get like the theatrical the live theater music version of this kind of
2: yeah and the idea that it totally suffuses Nina's life uh to the extreme that it's even what is played in her home and there's even a music box at one point that uh plays ballet music so um Thank you, man.
1: Thank you again. That was an awesome pairing. To wrap things up here, I'm going to do a little bit of some announcements here. So, uh, in two weeks, to close out September, we're going to be covering uh, Harlan County and American Movie, two documentaries with a special guest. And then, coming up in October, we're having Spooky Month. We're going to do episodes each week, so if you want to get prepared for that, um, in no particular order yet, we're going to be watching Final Prayer, aka Borderlands from 2013, paired with John Par- Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Um, we're going to be watching Candyman, paired with Mothman Prophecies, and we're going to be watching, um, The Fog.
2: Have we paired The Fog yet, Josh? No, we were we still had that kind of up in the air, I think. Okay. The Fog,
1: so we're, we're, we're also going to be watching The Fog paired with an unknown. And we're going to be watching Bone Tomahawk paired with an unknown. So that'll give you guys a little bit of time if you're someone who likes to watch the movies before listening.
2: And I am really excited. It's going to be a lot of work, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I I think it's going to be really cool. We've got guests for all of those spooky episodes, and I'm looking forward to that. So um, thank you, everyone. Thanks
1: for listening. Josh, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you. Uh, As always, it's been a great time.
1: Okay, so that'll wrap us up. For me, Sean Perry, that's Josh Ickes over there. Uh, Please be kind to yourself, be kind to your neighbors, and we will see you again next time here on Nashville CA.